My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list, for better or worse. So today we're doing a film that's connected to Quentin Tarantino, wouldn't you say? Uh, In the slimmest possible sense. In the slimmest possible sense, but it was part... The Machete franchise was part of the box set? No, no. Um, Grindhouse was part of the box set, and Machete is part of Grindhouse. Yeah. So I'm unfortunately grandfather... Well, I don't consider the Machete part to be unfortunate. The Spy Kids one, maybe, but I'm grandfathered in. We have watched Robert Rodriguez's... Sequel to his machete, first machete film, Machete Kills. Uh, before, but before we get into that, let's get on to some news. Sure thing. First off, we have some renewals. Dollface has been renewed on Hulu for a second season. Netflix has renewed You for season three. Comedy Central has renewed Tosh.0, which is still on the air, for seasons 13, 14, 15, and 16. And TBS has Amer- has renewed American Dad for seasons 17 and 18. And meanwhile, Facebook has cancelled Limetown after one season in a reported uh, move to cut back on their scripted offerings, which I think most people could have probably predicted that that would be coming sooner or later. We have a lot of news on the bulletin this week because it's in the middle of the TCA press tour in America, but let's try and run through some of the smaller stuff here. Uh, NBC has given a series order to a comedy series based on the childhood of Dwayne Johnson. It's called Young Rock. Johnson would feature in every episode, I would assume, through narration. Um, so I'm getting a lot of everybody hates Chris vibes off this. Yeah, I'm wondering why they aren't just calling this Everyone Hates Dwayne. He should mm. just be playing himself as a child. <laughs> I, w- I might actually watch that. <laughs> um... Sci-Fi is developing a Peter Pan limited series called The League of Pan. I'm quoting Deadline. The series picks up with the fabled characters after 10 years on the mainland. Now grown up and estranged, Wendy Darling and the Lost Boys must return to Neverland to face a new evil that threatens the very existence of the magical place they once called home, reigniting bitter rivalries and unearthing twisted secrets from their past. The series explores the painful truths of growing up, and the realisation that going home is never quite as simple as you think. Channel 4 has ordered a new dramedy series called Chivalry. It's written by and starring Steve Coogan and Sarah Salmani, and deals with post-MeToo sexual politics, according to Deadline. I'm quoting the site here. It stars Coogan and Salmani as filmmakers put together by a cynical studio executive to salvage a failing movie. Coogan plays successful producer Cameron, who is known for dating a string of young women. Salmani stars as woke writer and director Bobby, a mother of one who has tasted success with a low-budget feminist film. The odd couple are brought closer by a creeping attraction and a feeling that they are just pawns in the studio's agenda for a Saudi Arabian buyout. Showtime has set an April the 26th premiere date for Penny Dreadful's City of Angels, its upcoming spiritual spin-off of the, the first Penny Dreadfuls, uh, which was a, a fantastic series. I'm quoting Deadline here. Uh, spiritual descendant of the original Penny Dreadful, which was set in Victorian-era London. The new series is set in 1938 Los Angeles, a time and place deeply infused with social and political tension. 
When a grisly murder shocks the city, Detective Tiago Vega and his partner Louis Mekina become embroiled in an epic story that reflects the history of Los Angeles, which spans from the building of the city's first freeways to its deep traditions of Mexican-American folklore to the dangerous espionage actions of the Third Reich and the rise of radio evangelism. It's not long until Tiago and his family are grappling with powerful forces that threaten to tear them apart. Uh, this looks like a good series. There's a trailer out. It looks very good. Uh, and it seems to star Natalie Dormer as a shape-shifting demon. So That's cool. Doesn't it also have Nathan Lane? Yes, he's one of the detectives. That's a little weird, but sure. Uh, he's Go good, though. He's, he's, he's a good dramatic actor. He doesn't get that much opportunity to do the drama thing but he's good when he does do it amazon has ordered a series based on lee child's jack reacher books the first season is going to adapt killing floor uh i'm quoting from goodreads here for the first book ex-military policeman jack reacher is a drifter he's just passing through margrave georgia and in less than an hour he's arrested for murder not much of a welcome all jack knows is that he didn't kill anyone at least not here not lately. But he doesn't stand a chance of convincing anyone. Not in Margrave, Georgia. Not a chance in hell. So that's the story that's going to be adapted in the first season. Tom Cruise, of course, played Jack Reacher in the movies. He's not returning, obviously. Uh, which, I know his casting was kind of controversial among Jack Reacher fans, including my grandmother, because Tom Cruise is like a good foot and a half shorter than Jack Reacher's supposed hmm. to be. He's a... Good foot and a half shorter than most characters he's playing. Yeah. HBO Max has ordered a scripted anthology series from Adam McKay inspired by David Wallace Wells' non-fiction climate change book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. I'm quoting Deadline here, the series will be comprised of standalone fictional stories covering a wide range of genres and possible futures that could result from the rapid warming of our planet. I'm really interested in that because it's Adam McKay, uh, uh, but that also sounds horrifying, and I might not even want to watch it because the news is bad enough. Thank you. Yeah. Amazon has passed on the Dark Tower series it was developing. It was apparently not satisfied with the pilot enough to order the, the show to series, but the production company behind it, MRC, is shopping the scripts elsewhere. Cinemax is going to stop producing original scripted series. Uh, it's unclear what this means for shows like Warrior that are currently airing, but we'll probably find that out going forward. TNT's series adaptation of Snowpiercer has gotten a May 31 premiere date. I'm quoting Deadline, set more than seven years after the world has become a frozen wasteland, Snowpiercer centres on the remnants of humanity who inhabit a perpetually moving train with 1,001 cars that circles the globe. Class warfare, social injustice, and the politics of survival play out in this riveting television adaptation. Uh, that's already been renewed for a second season, so that'll be on for a while at least. I mean, it is a fa fascinating concept, and the movie did pretty well, so it did. why not? Steven Soderbergh has signed an overall deal with HBO and HBO Max. He'll be exclusively developing television for those networks. And when it comes to feature films, they have a first look option with him. Court TV is premiering a bizarre 37 part documentary series called OJ 25 on January the 23rd. This is kind of fascinating. It's a weekly series that 
chronicles the corresponding week's events in the trial of O.J. Simpson 25 years ago. So it's airing on the 25th anniversary, and it starts January 23rd. The O.J. trial started January 24th, 25 years ago. And each week of the show is going to be that week of the trial, which went on for 37 weeks. And they're going to have talking heads and all of the courtroom footage and stuff. There's got to be weeks where barely a thing happens. There yeah. has to be. Well, I would imagine that they'd use that stuff to like delve back into context and um, yeah. things like that. Because you, you've got to, you've, you can't just have the trial. You've got to go back into the investigation and the career and things. And I think OJ's life is very interesting post-trial. I want to see a documentary about that. Well, I think that was touched on in that uh, Made in America documentary series that they did a few years back that inexplicably won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, even though it was a six-hour miniseries. BBC has commissioned a six-episode thriller series called Vigil, starring Rose Leslie. I'm quoting Deadline. It's the fictional story of how the disappearance of a Scottish fishing trawler and a death on board a Trident nuclear submarine create conflict between the police, the Royal Navy, and the intelligence services. AMC has set premiere dates for two new series, The Walking Dead, World Beyond, will premiere on April the 12th. Quoting Deadline, delving into a new mythology and story that follows the first generation raised in a surviving civilization of the post-apocalyptic world. Two two sisters, along with two friends, leave a a place of safety and comfort to brave dangers known and unknown, living and undead on an important quest. Pursued by those who wish to protect them and those who wish to harm them. A tale of growing up and transformation unfolds across dangerous terrain, challenging everything they know about the world, themselves and each other. Some will become heroes, some will become villains, but all of them will find the truths they seek. Quiz, meanwhile, is a mini-series that's a co-production with ITV. It's going to premiere on May the 25th. I'm again quoting Deadline. It's the extraordinary and sensational story of how Charles and Diana Ingram attempted an audacious heist on the quiz show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Major Ingram and his wife Diana and an accomplice, Tequen Whitock, who was sitting in the audience, were accused of cheating their way to a million pounds on what was the most popular game show on earth in 2001. The couple stood trial for conspiring by coughing during the recording to signify the correct answers to the multiple choice questions posed to major posed to the major by the host Chris Tarrant, who is played by Michael Sheen in the some of the the set footage of that set photos of that he's like done up in this incredible like bleached white hair looking get up it looks great AMC is developing numerous new series uh Everything I'm about to say is quoted from Deadline. More as this story develops is inspired by the friendship between Katie Corrick and Wendy Walker. Two young women begin their careers in broadcast news in the 80s. Moston Brown's Bunny is based on the novel by Mona Award and features and follows a lonely student who is drawn into a mysterious clique of girls called the Bunnies and begins to partake in their strange off-campus ritual, conjuring boys from rabbits, where the good ones stay as romantic partners and the bad ones are mercilessly axed. 
The Sparrow is based on Mary Doria Russell's sci-fi novel with Chernobyl director Johan Renk as director and executive producer alongside Breaking Bad producer Mark Johnson. It is set in the near future when humans on Earth receive their first evidence of intelligent extraterrestrial life when a radio telescope picks up a strange signal sounding like exquisite music from a distant planet that will become known as Rakat. While United Nations diplomats endlessly debate a possible expedition, the Jesuit leadership quietly organises an eight-person scientific mission of its own, comprised of a variety of disciplines and backgrounds. What they find is a world so far beyond comprehension that it will lead them to challenge the very notions of humanity and faith itself. I wonder if this will end up being like a Prometheus thing where humankind were created by these aliens and then you have the religious stuff, you know, the Jesuit yeah. stuff. That Maybe. being challenged. Anyways, finally, Work It Out is from executive producer and writer Becca Gleason with Anna Camp attached to star and executive produce. Uh, it is set in 1994 in Myrtle Beach and it follows Kayla Tate, a longtime Jane Fonda devotee and aspiring aerobic superstar who will do whatever it takes to establish her workout empire in the darkly comedic half hour. Freeform has set a March the 18th premiere date for its fantasy war drama Motherland Fort Salem, which is inexplicably produced by Will Farrell of all people, and Adam McKay, it's from their production company before they went their separate ways. Uh, quoting Deadline, it's set in an alternate present-day America, where witches ended their persecution 300 years ago by cutting a deal with the burgeoning US government to fight for their country. The series follows three young women from basic training in combat magic, into terrifying and thrilling early deployment. In this world, the traditional roles of gender and power are flipped, with women on the front lines fighting looming terrorist threats that are strikingly familiar to our world, but with supernatural tactics and weapons. Hulu has ordered an untitled serialised comedy starring Martin Short and Steve Martin. It's based on an idea by Steve Martin. I'm quoting Deadline here. It's about three strangers who share an obsession with true crime and suddenly find themselves wrapped up in one. Long-time friends and frequent collaborators Martin and Short play two of the strangers. The third is a younger woman. Hulu has set premiere dates for two new shows. Soul Opposites will premiere on May the 8th. I'm quoting Deadline, it's an animated comedy co-created by Rick and Morty alums Justin Roiland and Mike McMahon and revolves around a family of aliens from a better world who must take refuge in middle America. They disagree on whether Earth is awful or awesome. The Great, meanwhile, is going to premiere on May the 15th. I'm quoting Deadline again. It's a comedy that chronicles a genre-bending, anti-historical ride through 18th century Russia and follows the rise of Catherine the Nothing to Catherine the Great. Elle Fanning is Catherine, with the favourite alum Nicholas Holt also starring. There's a teaser out for that. That looks fun. Nicholas Holt's playing this airhead sort of idiot. Uh, your Prince Charles impression, John. That. Oh, a, daddy. Yeah, that, but a TV series. Uh, oh, daddy, I want to see if this dog can fly. Don't Breathe 2 is finally moving ahead. Fede Alvarez is not returning as director, however. He's being replaced by Rodo Sayagas, who co-wrote the first one with Alvarez. They've written the sequel together as well. Filming starts in April, so they're finally going to make it, because they announced that they were making it in 2016 after the first one debuted, so it's taken them a while. That's it for the bulletin. That was a very long one, but uh, as I said, there was uh, an event in America this week, the TCA Press Tour, that has led to a lot of this news. Uh, so this is going to be a bit calmer in the weeks to come. But why don't we go into our discussion points? First off, Sci-Fi has ordered 
a Chucky TV series. Don Mancini, who has written all of the movies and has directed the last few, he's really been shepherding the series since its beginning. Um, he's returning as showrunner. And I'm quoting Deadline here, after a vintage Chucky doll turns up at a suburban yard sale, an idyllic American town is thrown into chaos as a series of horrifying murders begin to expose the town's hypocrisies and secrets. Meanwhile, the arrival of enemies and allies from Chucky's past threatens to expose the truth behind the killings, as well as the demon doll's untold origins as a seemingly ordinary child who somehow became this notorious monster. I watched all of the Chucky series last year, and I had a real blast for it. I actually liked the later ones more than the the early ones because they just got increasingly weird and bizarre and strange. And while other long-running horror series like Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th or Halloween got so fast and loose with their continuity and sort of picked and choosed what they wanted to carry over in each one. Chucky is admirably committed to an extraordinary degree to keeping the same characters and the same cast, referencing things that happened three movies ago. Sometimes it's like an offhand joke. Uh, it's it's bizarre how intricate and complicated the continuity got, the mythology. And the most recent one uh, that came out in 2017, I think it was called Cult of Chucky, that ends in such a way that I'm very interested to see this TV series because they set some things up in the last 20 minutes of that movie that make my expectations for this series bigger in scope than they might otherwise be. It, if they follow through on it, it seems like it could be pretty wild. I'm just curious what the release means by old enemies. Old that's one of the great things about the Chucky movies is, you know, you have like Friday the 13th and, you know, some lady survives to the end of a Friday the 13th movie and then she never turns up again. But with Chucky, if they survive to the end of a Chucky movie, they're probably going to turn up again in the future. They like become this. It's a thing that they've started to do in the last couple of movies where they've started to have this sort of almost Van Helsing association of former victims of Chucky teaming like up Andy. to hunt. Yeah teaming up to hunt him down. They brought the, the original Andy actor back. Um, he's, like, not acted in pretty much anything in the last, like, 20 years, but he's back for... Uh, he, he was in the last Chucky movie, and I would assume is, is returning in this. Um, so uh, I tell you what, next time I see you guys, I'll give you my copy of the Chucky Blu-ray box set because I really want you to... I want to see what you guys think because I think just some of the b- absurd intense lore of the Chucky franchise would be really up your guy's alley and it's it's quite amusing as well. It's one of those series that handled the the shift from relatively straight-faced horror to postmodern hyper-referential scream horror pretty delicately and and sort of found a new uh found a new life. spirit, new life, new reason for being in that transition. It's always nice when things do that. The release also says the secret origin of Chucky. So we're going to get a little more Charles Lee Ray. Yes. Which they have. And again, this is this all starts to go into spoilers for some of the later movies. So I'm going to avoid that. But they have sort of started to talk about some of the 
the original things of Charles Lee Ray and some of the stuff that they do in the seventh movie, uh, setting up some things for this TV series, I would assume. It doesn't really go into his origins, but there is stuff that is done that sort of you could very easily think of a way to to sort of pad that out with his origins. I'm being intentionally obtuse here, but... I mean, the whole thing about Charles Lee Ray is that he's a voodoo magician who has transferred his soul into that of a plastic doll because he was gunned down in a toy store. And there's some stuff that they set up about what he is capable of with his voodoo that, you know, they could do, like, I suppose, a, a training thing or him starting out as a serial killer. There's stuff in this this press release about um, the town's hidden secrets and history coming out that might have something to do with that as well. A Rocky montage-type thing of Brad Dourif just learning voodoo. <laughs> well, they've, they've also done some... Um, some flashbacks to him when he was still human and some of the more recent ones too, which they didn't even try to de-age him. Like it's a, an obviously 60 something year old Brad Dourif pretending like he's 25 again. <laughs> like a sliding timeline scale. It doesn't matter. He's always looked old and weird. So it's not like it as matters. As long as he remains looking scary. Yeah. That's well, the main f- thing. From memory, they do the flashbacks in like black and white to sort of, <laughs> I, mean, I think they like have him like, it's like that joke of, in the Simpsons of Kent Brockman, he's got that clothes peg holding his yeah. flappy skin back behind his neck. So Brad Dourif is coming back for this. Yes. yes. That's awesome. Presumably, there, there has been some incredible commitment by some of these cast members. The, the Chucky series inexplicably has two Academy Award-nominated performers who are part of the series regulars, uh, Brad Dourif and, and Jennifer Tilly. Um, but... Yeah, I'll be really interested in this. I actually wrote, this is a tangent, but um, in one of our film classes at university, I wrote a, uh academic essay on the Chucky series and its importance in horror and the transformation of it through the years. And I got the highest possible mark. <laughs> so... <laughs> I just like that as a fact that I've that I've written a academic essay about the Chucky series. That's a nice bit of trivia, I think. You're emotionally invested in I the am, Chucky I series. I am. I was really surprised and thrown when I watched it how how into it I was. He's not only emotionally invested, he's academically invested. He is now a Chucky scholar, technically. <laughs> Well, so I'd, if this if this series turns out to be trash, what will your response be? Well, I'll still have to watch it because I've got to find out how the story ends. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I don't think it's going to be trash. I don't think they've made a they put it this way. They've made one, at least in my opinion one bad Chucky movie, but they've never made a boring one. They've never made a not entertaining one. Yeah. Like, um, the, the amount of jokes and kills are just numerous. It's It just leads itself to a weird toy going around killing people. Do you think it's going to involve Chucky's uh, wife and child? The child? Probably not. The wife? Almost certainly. <laughs> yeah. Considering some of the things that they've done in those later movies, again, I will I will lend you the Blu-rays next time I see you because I want your thoughts on this. Anyways, moving on, CBS is developing a Silence of the Lambs sequel series called Clarice, 
Hannibal Lecter is not going to be involved in this. I'm quoting from Deadline here. Clarice is set in 1993, a year after the events of The Silence of the Lambs. The series is a deep dive into the untold personal story of Clarice Starling as she returns to the field to pursue serial murderers and sexual predators while navigating the high-stakes political world of Washington, D.C. This is not the uh, the Silence of the Lambs that I'm interested in seeing. Um, that I love Hannibal, the TV show Hannibal. I know for years now, pretty much ever since it was cancelled, Brian Fuller's been talking about and trying to get the rights to Clarice Starling and Silence of the Lambs so that they could adapt that as a sequel miniseries. But apparently MGM television thought that the way to go instead was to make what seems like another generic procedural right my the way i look at this is that it could be good it could but is thomas harris involved in any way thomas harris isn't involved in any of the the adaptation stuff like even silence of the lambs he was just like yeah take the book it's your job now (laughs) Uh, my problem is they're not going off source material. Well, neither was Hannibal for most of it, and that was fantastic. Yeah, but Hannibal was Brian Fuller, so... Hannibal was still looking at... They still adapted some of the books, and the storylines and characters from the books. Yeah. Only in the the last season, though. No, they adapted they had, characters. From oh, they adapted characters, the but they weren't adapting the stories. Yeah they, yeah, they had like Mason Verger and his sister. They had Francis Dollarhide. Yeah, they had and all, all of that. And Hannibal also carried on the series's ability to create really visually striking scenes and visually striking uh, murders. So, for example, one of the earliest episodes of Hannibal. Uh, had the dude who was growing mushrooms from corpses. Yeah. Like, stuff like that is fascinating on both a visual and a pathological sense. And it would be doing the series injustice if this Clarice series doesn't have that sort of aesthetic. It needs to be grim. It needs to be incredibly dark and kind of miserable. (laughs) Um, there's a version of, there's a version of this series that I think I might like, which is if they really lent into the grimness of it, they made it like super dark, super serialized. They mentioned like the political stuff in Washington and things like that. If they lent into that and sort of made it a a weird cross between the good wife and criminal minds, there's a version of that that I can see that is like, I'm interested in that. I just don't trust network television to pull that off least of all cbs they need to get someone good as clarice because hmm. we've had some really good actors as her i mean if this was an hbo series or a netflix series or an fx series i would be much more interested than i am that it's a cbs series yeah uh, just to pick up here briefly um, I'm looking at a tweet from Brian Fuller. This does not mean that he's not going to have a sequel miniseries for <laughs> Hannibal. But um, he keeps saying that. He does, he, but he's apparently been so focused on getting the Silence of the Lambs rights. My understanding of how things are divvied up, 
he and his team have the rights to Hannibal as a character, which is one of the reasons why this series can't use Hannibal. Hmm. Uh, but they don't have the rights to these to Clarice. Um, I'm not sure what that means for the story of Silence of the Lambs, whether they're allowed to adapt Silence of the Lambs with with a different character in place. But uh, I'm reading a tweet of his here after this news came out. Martha and I tried many times to work with MGM to include Clarice into our Hannibal story. They ultimately told us they had their own plans for Clarice and they didn't need Hannibal to tell her story. Don't think this impacts a potential Hannibal season four as we never had Clarice rights. So maybe this means that we'll get it sooner than later now because he's he knows that he can't get it. So he'll stop looking for stop trying to get the rights now. And they'll start looking at his own version. Which, you know, I that's kind of more interesting to me too. Like, I want the version that's of Silence of the Lambs or whatever the story is that he's going to do. I want the season four that's filtered through that very off-brand sort of style that Hannibal did. I don't want just a, a straight adaptation of Silence of the Lambs because that wasn't mm. really what that show was was about. It wasn't just taking the series at face value it was expanding and it was doing all this you know weird thematic stuff and it was doing and and will graham was such a big part of the series and the way that they end the series there are some things that would make his like he wouldn't be able to appear in a silence of the lambs adaptation in the same way that he does in the film but I, yeah, I hope that this all works out. I hope that, the, you know, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. I'll wait and see what this new series is like. Maybe it will be Criminal Minds meets The Good Wife. Uh, I doubt it, but maybe it'll be my favorite new series. They might uh, give it some of that Twilight Zone effort. And hopefully, uh, hopefully Brian Fuller will manage to get something going. I've got to imagine with the amount of talk and buzz that's been out about that show ever since it was cancelled that... At some point, we will see a continuation. Well, it's I mean, just too much smoke for there not to be a fire. And people will really be interested in it because, as we've seen with him getting taken off of American Gods, that the entire reason why the first season was as successful as it was was because he was showrunning. Well, he wasn't taken off. He uh, he quit because they weren't able to give him the same budget that they gave him in the first season, and he didn't want to compromise his vision. He he has a habit, admittedly, of sort of just quitting when instead of compromising, he's quit a number of things over the past few years, and he's not currently working on anything. So maybe That's he's cooking why. something up with Hannibal. That maybe he's cooking something up with Hannibal. Hopefully. Uh, the CW has picked up its Superman and Lois series for a first season. It's commissioned it. We talked about how it was in development a few weeks back, or a few months back now at this point would have been. Uh, but it's, I'm quoting Deadline, it revolves around the world's most famous superhero and comics books, most famous journalists, as they deal with all the stress, pressures, and complexities that come with being working parents in today's society. Now, Harley, I know this is very much your thing. You were indicating to me that there was perhaps something that happened or something that was set up in Crisis on Infinite Earths, the way that those characters were left that makes this series interesting to you. 
Yes. Uh, look, there's... I'm going to try and move around the murky spoiler waters here. Uh, because there are definitely things that happen po- that have happened during Crisis that affect the post-Crisis landscape of pretty much all of the shows. Yeah. It, especially the ones that are going to be starting. Quick question right off the bat. Are these characters, Superman and Lois Lane, are they going to be situated inside of the same universe as all of the other Arrowverse stuff? Or have they sort of moved into a different plane? All right, don't answer okay. that. What do you mean by that <laughs> question? Mean? Well, that do, question you know, can have a lot of answers. Well, are they still in the same universe as everyone else? Or have they moved, like, to Earth 126 or whatever? Are they, like, potentially going to be turning up in the crossovers? It's it's very similar to how things have been. Yeah. So, so Superman, yes. Superman could rock up on Supergirl one week or... Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. That That is and, still the way that that half of things is going to work. And something else happens that is interesting. Yeah. There's an so, interesting thing that happens... In the post-crisis the landscape for the character of Superman and the character of Lois Lane and the relationship with the broader... Uh, All right. I feel I, I feel as if being the person who hasn't watched this, I should try and manage this conversation so that you don't ac- accidentally spoil something. But let me just ask, when, when we were talking about it, when it was announced as being a development, I mentioned yep. how I was not really, like, they, they seem to be re- leaning really heavily into, like, the family elements and the like, you know, oh, yes. how do you manage being a dad and being a superhero? And I just was not interested in that. Is there sort of, in, in the way that Crisis has left things, does these, the scenario, the environment that those characters have been left in, does that seem like something that will, will create an ongoing element of the show? Yes, or is that yes. just going to, okay. Uh, because this isn't a spoiler. This At the start of Crisis on Infinite Earths, we see Lois and Clark's son, Jonathan. He's a baby. I don't know if the end of Crisis aged him up at all. But it's possible. But it might imply that, among other things. Yeah, it's a little unclear. It's a bit unclear, just after finishing Crisis, without carrying on on any of the other shows past that point. But it definitely leaves the show in a very interesting space. It does, because, again, it's kind of... It's hard to right, talk around the yeah, spoilers. Let's just yeah. leave it at that, then. Um, I am kind of interested in what this means for the... Uh, is it the Black Canary show that they were working on, mm. that they're doing yeah. the backdoor pilot for? Uh, Green Arrow and the Black Canaries. Yes. Whether Who they're... knows how that's happening anymore? Yes. Well, it is It is still... They're still doing the, the backdoor pilot in one of these shows. So Next they're setting... episode of Arrow. Okay. So... But does that future still exist? Really? All right, let's see. You can have this conversation off air. It's complex. Um, but... It can't exist because... Stop a, talking. What are you doing? <laughs> um, I'm kind of interested as to whether they would... Uh, whether they would pick up two Arrowverse shows in the one cycle. 
or whether whether this this pickup of Superman and Lois, whether that sort of makes a pickup of Green Arrow and the Black Canaries less They've likely. They've already picked up both. Yeah, they haven't picked up Green Arrow and the Black Canaries. They're doing it back to a pilot. Let me just double check that to make sure I'm not pretty sure that they have said that they really want to make this series. Yeah. Well, that's not the same as... I'm fascinated by what villains they could get for this Superman show. Mm. Because there's a, there's a lot of villains that they've used on Supergirl. Yeah. Which, honestly, you know, fair enough. Yeah, a lot they of them can also as... cross back over, like Parasite and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, the classic villains. Yeah, they didn't know that they were going to do a Superman series or was going to be allowed to do a superman series back when they started supergirl so they did heavily load a bunch of superman villains in the first three seasons and have only now started to do sort of Mm. their own like supergirl specific bad guys yeah but here's the thing with the superman villains that did appear only a couple of them have individual identities of their own, like Mr. Mixer Spitalek. Yeah. Others like Parasite, others like Metallo. Amazo. They have been, Amazo even, have been shown to be transferable in terms of identity. Yeah. So. And Brainiac could be in it. They could do Intergang. And. They have set up Bruno Mannheim. So there's a lot they can do for that show. And I'd really like to see them. Uh, do a lot of the journalism stuff with those two characters because they haven't focused that much on that version of Clark in terms of the journalism. See, I'm less interested in the journalism side of things. I know that's a weird thing for somebody studying journalism to say, but we've gotten a lot of that in Supergirl. Oh, dude, Perry White. Yes, yes. That's going to be sick. I want to know what direction they're taking Perry. Hmm. All right, this is getting pretty inside baseball for me. Um, I, I can't find any confirmation that it's been ordered to series. It probably Green will be, Canaries. Well, hopefully. This is the CW. What I really want to see, though, is um, a Batman Beyond live-action series. You were saying that to us. Like, I, everyone I wants to... Every fan of the cartoon, every fan of the movies, every fan of the comics, we desperately want that. And almost everybody wants Michael Keaton to play old Bruce in that. Yes. Batman Beyond and live-action Scooby-Doo. Get on it, CW. Mindhunter has been placed on indefinite hiatus. The cast contracts have been allowed to lapse. Uh, it is important to note, however, that it is not cancelled. David Fincher is busy. He's filming a new movie soon. And he apparently can't fit season three in for a while. And David Fincher is heavily involved in Mindhunter. Yeah. It's one of the reasons we haven't gotten a new movie from him in a while is because he's been so focused on Mindhunter. So Netflix is has been very uh, specifically saying that the show is not cancelled and it is really up to David Fincher as to when and if that... Uh, that series continues. And the yeah. cast has all indicated that they're willing to come back when he's ready. Yeah, David Fincher has said on the record that, you know, we let the thing lapse because we don't want the actors to not take roles while waiting. So he's basically letting them 
go out and do other things while he finishes what he's doing huh. so that he can at a later point come back to Mindhunter. Yeah. Uh, who's the actor who plays the main... Jonathan Groff. Jonathan Groff. It opens him up for some more movie stuff. Yes. Uh, so he could possibly play, play Two-Face. Fingers crossed. Uh, but I really like Mindhunter. Uh, it's such a tightly scripted show. Uh, I also really appreciate the uh, performances. They are all fantastic actors. And it is a shame it's on hiatus, but I wouldn't want to see it done without Fincher. According to uh, Holt McElhaney, who plays one of the other characters on the show, David Fincher has, this is recent, this is from a couple of months ago he was saying this, David Fincher apparently has a five-season plan for the show. Hmm. So if it really is up to David Fincher, and David Fincher has a five-year plan from the show, it seems kind of likely that they'll yeah. they'll keep going. Yeah. Because I don't want to see what the show's like without Fincher involved. And do you know they that... make it if, if it wasn't with Fincher. That show takes place over extended periods of time. You yes, know? exactly. So you could have... The ageing of the cast is not really a problem. Even if it's like four years and then they come back and do a season three and then it's another like five years and they do a season four. If it's just something that Fincher, you know, delves back into every now and again, um, that's something that could work. Finally, for the deep dives this week, we have a ton of news for NBC Universal's new streaming service, Peacock. Uh, I know it's that you so guys... so bizarre. The way yes. that they're doing this is so bizarre. It is an unnecessarily complicated release and pricing structure that is just going to confuse everyone. I'm quoting from The Hollywood Reporter here because I frankly didn't trust myself to... Uh, abridge all of this without messing something up. It's so intricate and weird. The ad-supported direct-to-consumer platform will launch April the 15th to Comcast customers with a lineup of more than 15,000 hours of content that includes exclusive library titles like The Office and Parks and Recreation and scripted and unscripted originals like a new take on Battlestar Galactica. The platform will take centre stage during NBC's coverage of the Summer Olympics in 2020. It will debut nationally, so not just to Comcast customers, on July the 15th, when the entire NBC Universal fold will get behind Peacock with a massive marketing push promoting the service, with originals likely to launch after the games. Each level of pricing will feature additional exclusive content. The free service has next-day access to select shows, classic series and movies, sports and select premium programming. Peacock Premium, which is free to Comcast and Cox Cable subscribers, also has full seasons of originals and more. It costs $5 a month for non-Comcast and Cox Cable subscribers. An ad-free option costs $5 to Comcast subscribers and ten dollars to non-subscribers. So that, God, that's like, what are you doing, NBC? Like, let's just address that before we get onto two of the interesting shows they've got lined up. What the hell? Like, like you can't just, have your cake and eat it too. Either make it a free service or don't. Well, they are sort of trying to emulate what Hulu does, which is currently there is a or. 
I'm not that up to date with Hulu anymore because it's not in Australia and all I've really got is like hearing some people on other podcasts who live in America talk about it. But there was a, there is or there was a free version of Hulu which was like had ads and I think that still exists where you watch a show and where there would be an ad in the show, um, there is an ad, like a YouTube kind of ad. And sometimes it would be really frustrating because they'd play the same ad at every ad break. Like SBS On Demand has that. Yeah. Yeah. But the difference between this and Hulu is that Hulu is relatively simple. You have a free version, which has those ads, and you have a premium version, which does not. Uh, As opposed to whatever the hell this is, with its labyrinthine uh, maze of weird, like, are you a subscriber to Comcast or something called Cox... uh, Cable yeah. subscribers. Look, and chances are... Like, and what does str- this mean for international when that happens? International well, audiences are probably screwed on this front. Well, like, if it went to Australia, they could, I suppose, make a deal with a local cable provider, like yeah, Foxtel like, or Telstra. Yeah. I think and, it would have to be Telstra. Uh, or they could just have... They could just ditch the whole cable thing and just have the free version and the paid version. But then even if you're just looking at the free version and the paid version, so there's a free version which has only next day access to select shows, classic series and movies, sports, and select premium programming. Select. So not all of the content on the service and not, from the sounds of it, original series. No, this is such... Oh, it's so frustrating. Peacock Premium allows you access to the original series for $5 a month, but contains ads still. Then there is an ad-free version that is $10. Just and obviously two tiers. I mean, it's not difficult. So, And obviously the pricing here is actually not that that bad compared to like Netflix and things like it's yes it's more than Disney plus and it's more than than Apple but NBC Universal isn't the kind of company that has the kind of bank balance that would let them take that kind of you know Peacock's gonna have more shows on it yes than Apple anyway but it's just how weird that they've set this up there's like three different tiers conceivably when it goes international if it goes it's even more complicated it's but it's just in America but it's more complicated than that, Jean, because it has multiple versions of each tier. So you yeah, have the f- but only in America. Yeah, which is the only place it's confirmed to launch at this point. I think. <sighs> I, I I predict that they will solidify this and streamline this very very quickly. They, they have to. They have to, or it. people aren't going to bother. Like. A way that they could do it is that if you are a Comcast subscriber, a Cox Cable subscriber, similar to how, say, Telstra has a thing with Foxtel, where you can get certain things on a deal, like at a cheaper than other things, that's the way that they could do that. Well, that is the way that they well. But may, maybe the fact that we're looking at this all laid out in this article is making it seem more complicated than it is. Maybe when you're actually, if you're like in America, you're like, I want to go and sign up for Peacock 
and then you type in Peacock on your web browser or whatever, or you download the Peacock app, Peacock app on your phone, when you go into the login, there'll probably just be like um, three options. Do you want this tier, this tier, or are you a Comcast subscriber? Yeah. Mm. And maybe the fact that we're looking at this in all... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm almost certain I'm giving the, them too much benefit of the doubt. <laughs> the yeah. thing that throws it into a sort of weird place is the free tier. That sort of makes it a little bit weirder. Like, my whole... The whole ethos of the streaming service, like Netflix and Disney+, Plus and soon HBO Max, is about convenience and ease of use. That's the whole point. People want a streamlined process. This whole strange tier system kind of goes against that whole idea yeah. of simplicity. NBC he- are only doing this because everyone else is. Yeah. Like, really, that's it, and they well, yeah. haven't learned a single lesson. That can even be shown by the originals that they're doing, which I'm excited for, but are still very interesting gambles on their part. Hmm. The um, the thing with all these streaming services is they will survive as long as it is more profitable to have your own streaming service than it is to make deals with other streaming services. Yeah. As long as it makes NBC Universal more money to have this streaming service, even if it's not like the most wildly successful thing in the world, even if it only has, you know, a small amount of subscribers compared to your Netflixes and your Amazons and things, if it still makes them more of a profit than it would do licensing out shows to someone else's streaming service, it will continue. Yeah. The, th- the thing that's... Look, Peacock, you can have this advice for free. This is how you do it. You have a free version that is ad-supported and you don't get access to original series on. And you have a premium version, which is no ads at all, $10 unless you're a Comcast subscriber and then it's $5. Yeah, simple. There you go. It's it's very easy. You don't it's have what this... what so many other things do. This weird, stupid, pointless... Who is going to pay for a tier that still has ads? Why no is there why is there a mid tier here that it doesn't is, make any sense? That is you're still paying a premium price but you're getting ads. Yeah. Premium and ads and, don't work. And then together. even then you've got a Comcast one where you're paying five dollars and that has ads, but if you are not what like just have two tiers. It's not difficult. It's right. not hard. Anyways, let's move on. There are some series in development here. Uh, I'm just going to run through them all. I know two of them specifically you want to talk about. So I'll start with the ones that you don't want to talk about specifically. In development are an untitled... These, these are all on Peacock. An untitled tech anthology series. I'm quoting Deadline. Through exclusive access and exhaustive investigative reporting, New York Times bestselling author Nick Bilton draws on hundreds of sources, documents, and internal emails to tell intimate true stories of companies behaving badly and technology gone awry. The first instalment of this anthology series will be based on Bilton's acclaimed book, Hatching Twitter, a tale of betrayed friendships and high-stakes power struggles that accompanied the meteoric rise of the infamous tech company. 
140 characters and a few lines of code change the world, disrupting the very fabric of the way people communicate. This series will explore the real masterminds behind it all, how it was done, and the colossal ramifications the technology will have on our future. So that's in development. Also in development is something you guys wanted to talk about. The Adventure Zone, based on the McElroy family's wildly popular Dungeons & Dragons podcast. I'm quoting Deadline again, by the way. And number one, New York Times best-selling graphic novel series. The Adventure Zone is a side-splitting and heart-filled fantasy co- animated comedy that follows an unlikely, poorly equipped trio and their beleaguered dungeon master as they reluctantly embark on a quest to save their world. Also ordered to series is a show called Hitman. I'm quoting Deadline. The series explores the hits and, more often than not, misses of two hapless dead broke best friends. Dead broke, not dead, comma broke. Best friends. That would be very interesting. I just realised that me taking a breath there might have sent the wrong impression. Uh, Trying to make their way in the world with only each other to rely on. They also just happen to kill people for a living. Having stumbled into a career in contract killing, misfits Fran and Jamie are not your typical killers for hire. Working out of their scruffy van, each episode follows the hapless duo as they try to carry out their latest hit, inevitably derailed by incompetence, bickering, and inane antics. So I know that you guys wanted to talk about the Adventure Zone and Hitmen. Yes. I'm. Let's start off with Hitmen. I'm very fascinated with this concept. I've always liked the idea of having just goobers committing crimes. It's a fascinating idea for me. There was a Hitman movie that came out last year or the year before last called uh, Dead in a Week or Your Money Back about this suicidal guy who hires a Hitman played by Tom Wilkinson to kill him in the next week and he doesn't want, he doesn't, he doesn't want to know when it happens because he just wants to go quietly. But then he, like, meets a girl and decides he want, wants to live. But Tom Wilkinson refuses to call off the hit because he's, like, got this streak where every hit he's been hired for is completed and he doesn't want to break the hit, break the streak. Kill me three times. It's got Simon Pegg. He's a professional hitman who finds himself embroiled in three tales of murder, blackmail, and revenge after he botches a contract assignment. And it's this fascinating comedy of this guy who is really just trying to do his job, but other people and their own bullshit will just not let him. And it's a fascinating concept. I love the idea of making a hitman just a nine-to-five job like you clock in and you clock out you have lunch breaks in between and outside of the killing people professionally for money perfectly reasonable very nice person what interests me about this show is the similarity it has to something like no activity yes where it's just two characters in a serious situation just farting around yeah and I just re- I just think this concept leads to a really darkly funny show. Yeah. Like, they could be having arguments while uh, they're about to execute someone like in Mist in Between. Yeah. Or while they're torturing someone like in Mist in Between. It's, it's just a, such a funny setup. Yeah. 
And it has been done before, but I, I just love seeing it happen. And on the point of the Adventure Zone, it's one of my favorite podcasts by one of my favorite podcast companies. With some of your favorite podcast boys. Yeah, with some of my favorite podcasters. I love D&D. I really enjoy playing it. And The Adventure Zone is just a great show. But I really want them to keep the McElroys as the voice actors. Yes. For all of the characters. Because it wouldn't be the same without it. No, you need that energy of... You need to have the bits within the narrative... And stepping out of that. Because some of the funniest stuff is stepping out of it as well. And showing the McElroys actually playing the game. Yeah. So, and there's been a lot of fan animated videos on YouTube based on all of the different seasons that they've done. And I'm just wondering what aesthetic it's going to have. Because it might follow the visual aesthetic of the graphic novels. I think it would, by Carrie Peach. And... That's... I'm just excited to see this happen. Uh, but the McElroys have said that it's being developed. They don't know if it's going to get picked up. Yeah. So, I'm interested to see how this turns out. Because if they finish Balance, and that works out well, they may do the other seasons as well. Yeah. Which would fascinate me. Anyways, that's it for the news this week. So, why don't we move on to what we've been watching. And why don't we start off with something that we all saw in the cinemas together. We saw Jojo Rabbit, which is a satirical dramedy directed by Taika Waititi based on Christine Lunan's 2008 book, Caging Skies. It's about an indoctrinated kid called Jojo, played by Roman Griffin Davis. He's a member of the Hitler Youth in Nazi Germany, and he discovers that his mother, played by Scarlett Johansson, is hiding a Jewish girl named Elsa. Uh, played by Thomas and Mackenzie in their crawl space. He tries to manage this problem with the assistance of his imaginary friend, Adolf Hitler, also played by Taika Waititi. So why don't you start us off, Sean? What did you think of this one? I loved it. It's very funny, but doesn't it doesn't slouch when it comes to the serious moments. It has a fantastic visual language. It's... As if Wes Anderson was like, I'm going to make a movie about Nazis and have a shit ton of slapstick. And then he just did it. But instead, it's Taika Waititi. Scarlett Johansson is brilliant in this. I Mm. think we can all agree. She brings a fantastic energy to the character. And there's a particular scene where I think I turned to you, Lawson, and I said, "She she has to win for that. None of the other actors are slouches either. Thomas and Mackenzie is brilliant as Elsa. She's got the anger of someone who's having her entire way of life stamped out. She's got the... She's still a very sweet person. And she's also very proud of her heritage. Yeah. She's giving, I think, the best performance in the movie. It's definitely the most layered. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Merchant... Plays an SS guy, and it's hilarious because he literally towers over everybody. And Taika Waititi, I mean, as Hitler, that the imaginary Hitler inside JoJo's head goes through a few different shades, but is still recognizable as generally like Hitler. 
they don't overuse him either. No. They use him sparingly, like he only has maybe half a dozen scenes in the entire yeah. movie. Um, so it's not like, I don't know, Jiminy Cricket to his Pinocchio or anything. It, no. it's, a, it's a very thematically linked thing where he comes in in moments of stress for Toto. Yeah. It punctuates yeah. his moments. Uh, it's when okay. he's trying now to work through a nuts. problem. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's hilarious. It's one of my favorite of the year. Favorites of the year. Sam Rockwell was in it. Yes. And he's hilarious. Him and Alfie Allen are uh, a perfect comedic duo. Yeah. And I couldn't hear him doing a German accent. No, like, it was. It's very... It's not great, but it's allowed to oh. be not great. Scarlett Johansson's wasn't great either. No, no. The uh, kids one was The kids was good. He nailed it. Thomas and Mackenzie, again, she was the best German accent, I think. Yeah. Tychus isn't that great because... Well, he's it's not it meant on. to be he's, good. Yeah, it's meant to be funny. He's, he's not trying to do... He's not trying to do Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, level, no. getting into God character no. he, as Hitler. It's a pastiche of Hitler. It's, it's a parody. Yeah, it's a parody. Because, like, there's one of the trailers for this movie was... You know the scene out of Downfall? The Hitler movie that everyone makes their little parodies of? Where he loses his shit of, in the bunker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have one where Hitler's going on about how... Like, why did they get a Polynesian Jew to play me? And at the end of it, he says something along the lines of, "What they should get that guy who did Thor Ragnarok. That movie was really good. And, yeah, he's just really funny in it. He, the way he moves is so almost Jim Carrey-esque. I know that you don't like Jim Carrey, but, yeah, he's just got a fantastic sort of... It's a great physical performance Physical performance. Well. Uh, I knew I was going to love this movie from the trailers, but the moment they started doing a German version of I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles, yeah, I was in. It's what makes the movie work, I think. And um, we've talked a lot about the cast, and I think we should really also just say how really good Roman Griffin Davis is as the main yeah. kid. This is his yeah. first acting job. Um, Which is surprising. He is very, very good. He, he's he been around show business for a while. I think he's the son of the cinematographer on a number of Marvel movies. Mm. But he is really quite excellent. He treats it like a pro. Yeah. And he's the right blend of, even though he is... You need, you need the character to be likable because you yeah. need to sort of be yeah. invested in his emotional journey. Like, the whole point of this movie is this kid who's, like, really indoctrinated into Nazism. He's a member of the Hitler Youth. His imaginary best friend is Hitler. Is him discovering the, the folly and the absurdity and the hatefulness of Nazi ideology. And you need to be invested in, in him as a character. He needs to be kind of a sweet kid under all of the trappings of the ideology you need to want to see him uh reclaimed from that kind of bigotry yeah. and and he does such a great job of giving that kid so much heart yeah yeah but you get frustrated with him as well mm. and that's he, all right he makes bad choices sometimes uh, a lot of the times actually he makes very childlike choices yeah. a lot of the times and He's always a child, even though all this horrific stuff's going on around him. Like, he's yeah. he's he's still a little 10-year-old kid, 
doesn't matter that, you know, they're in this war zone and there's all this stuff where the allies are closing in and things like that. The context of the movie doesn't matter. He's still a child and he's still going to make childlike choices and he's still going to act like a kid. Yeah, yeah. And that's what makes this movie so interesting is how it, in addition to being this satirical parody about Nazism and how stupid it is, it's also this really sweet and heartfelt coming-of-age movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, One of the weirdest coming-of-age movies I've ever oh, seen. Yeah. Like, I have to tell you, there's a scene at the Hitler Youth camp yeah. Uh, all of those scenes, I was just sitting in the cinema going, it must have been so awkward Yeah, to film all of that. And just, like, there's a book burning thing, and it yeah. would be so awkward to shoot, because you'd feel like such a dick. I, Rebel Wilson was also really funny in this. Mm. She like, was, and she was used uh, perfectly, intelligently. Yeah, you know, too many people. I think, I think some people soured on Rebel Wilson, but I don't think it's her fault. I think it's the fault of some of the filmmakers that cast her because they sort of throw her out and get her to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, they get her to do her pitch perfect shtick in every movie that she's in. But Taika Waititi is aware of her abilities as a comedic actress and uses those abilities to. She's not. She's not playing a character that she's played before. No, you know she's using that sort of weird vibe and energy that Rebel Wilson has, but yeah. in an entirely new way, in an entirely effective way. I do think it's fascinating how this year she's done sort of three different levels of critically acclaimed. She was in Jojo Rabbit, which is going for Oscars. She was in um, The Hustle. I think it's. The movie she did with Anne Hathaway. And that's sort of like your mid-tier sort of comedy. Watch it when it's on. Very funny. she was in Cats. Yes. And it's it's (laughs) this fascinating, like, she's run the critic reception gamut this year. And it's fascinating. But I feel Um, like like, she was actually one of my least favourite parts of Cats. And I think you, you look at the two movies, Cats and Jojo Rabbit. Cats is an example of a director not using... Rebel Wilson very well. Yeah. And Jojo Rabbit is an example of a director using Rebel Wilson very, very well. And yeah. The Hustle is sort of an example of uh, the director not using her very well, but casting her well, and she does the rest of the work. Yeah. And so it's that weird sort of sliding scale effect with yeah. those three films. And, oh, what's the name of the kid who's friends with Jojo? Uh, Archie somebody... Um, he's actually been cast to play the Macaulay Culkin role in a reboot of Home Alone. Sure, I'm down for it. This kid, kid is brilliant. Was hilarious. He was hilarious. He's a tiny Nick Frost. It's, there's a great line. It's like, <laughs> I'm never, I'm never gonna die. Yeah, like, like, and there were moments in the movie where I was so afraid for this kid, and I was like, oh wow, he's definitely dead. Archie but he's Yates. Not. Yeah, mm. he's this kid. And I said it, I've said, yeah, I said that he was a tiny Nick Frost from the moment I saw him in the trailer. I'm like, he's got the exact energy. He's, he's like, if you took Nick Frost and you just made him a kid again. He's like, like the, the fun about him is that he's in his own separate movie. 
yeah. that you're yeah. seeing scenes of when it crosses over with Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. He's got his own, like, two-hour coming-of-age comedy about being a child soldier in the Nazi army. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all going on in the sidelines, and we just see the parts of it where he crosses over. And the way that it's sort of... The way that, that they juxtapose that sort of childlike friendship between the two, that very sweet and... Uh, genuine, sincere interaction with each other um, with the fact that they're wearing swastikas on their arms. Yeah, they've got got an entire bit in the movie where it's it's an earlier scene and Jojo's like, well, I can't have you as a best friend because of, you know... Hitler's my best friend. (laughs) Hitler's my best friend, but... You're my second best friend. Unless you're Hitler hiding inside a fat kid's body. Yeah. And, and the kid says, no, I'm just a fat kid inside a fat kid's body. <laughs> and that's so fantastic. Yeah. And there's a fantastic bit with a rocket launcher. Yeah. Which <laughs> is just, in all the trailers. Yeah. The comedy of that moment. That's perfect. It's just, it's one of those things where in a trailer it happens and I'm like, yep. But it's, it's like. So perfect. So a lot of the the comedy, like you get the really funny juxtaposition of him as this child, and he has those childlike moments. But then at the same time, a lot of the things that he says, especially as the movie goes on, you know, if they cast him as like a sixty year old grizzled soldier, it would also be you know entirely a- appropriate. Like the bit, like the bit, it's in all the trailers where he where he goes. Uh, this isn't a very good time to be a Nazi. <laughs> like, it's yeah. funny because it's a 10-year-old saying that in the most earnest voice possible. But yeah. if you cast, like, I don't know, Christoph Waltz in that role and had him say the same thing... It's essentially his yeah. dude from Glorious Bastards. Yeah. Um, anyways, yeah, fantastic. I, on, on, a, on a last note, I would just say that it melds the dramatic really well with the mm. funny. Like, it there does. are some... There's one, like, oh, shit moment. Oh, and yeah. I, that, like there's a moment where the audience like you could hear the intake of breath you could hear people react to yeah. the horror of what you're seeing on screen like, um, and the important thing is you don't see the horrifying act no, no. you it's, see the it's, aftermath it's very matter of fact about the horrors of what's going on yeah uh, in Nazi Germany and one of, one of the things Taika Waititi has said was he was fascinated by the aesthetic of the Nazis and he wanted to portray how that it would be to live in a Nazi town. But he also didn't want to shy away from the absolutely terrible, apocalyptic kind of world that they were living in. Like, it's it was a terrible, terrible thing. But he looks at it through the prism of a 10-year-old, which is fascinating. Um, yeah, so it was a really good movie, and I think... I think we pretty much all agree it's probably going to be on all of our 10 oh, yeah. best lists. Definitely. Uh, but why don't we move on? What else have you seen this week, John? I watched the 2016 Jungle Book. The live-action CGI one, directed by John Favreau, who did also the Jungle Book and has directed a ton of stuff. I really enjoy this take on the story. I like that it's... Not like in the original animation, where in this version, it's about how people try to use Mowgli to further their own goals. Even if they're sort of benevolent like Baloo, he's still using him. I 
really enjoy the changes that they've made to the personalities of the creatures. How they've made Louis, King Louis, played by Christopher Walken, this gigantopithecus. He's a giant orangutan, and he's almost, he's very sort of old mobster, in yeah, a like sense. like a mob boss. Like a mob boss? I read something somewhere where they explicitly tried to frame him like Marlon Brando <laughs> in Apocalypse Now. Like, the whole bit where he comes out of the shadows is meant to be almost identical to Marlon Brando coming out of the shadows towards the soldier in Apocalypse Now. And I love his performance. He... Yeah, it's just fantastic. Lupita Nyong'o as... Uh, Mowgli's wolf mother. I've forgotten her name. But she really pulls off a really good performance. And you've got Ben Kingsley as Bagheera. You've got Scarlett Johansson as a fantastic version of Carr. Where there's just something freaky about the way she says these lines. Like, you want to trust her, but you know you but shouldn't. You, the, her voice is so sweet, but has menace to it. And it's fantastic. Idris Elba as Shere Khan. And I hate to say this, he does a better Shere Khan than Benedict Cumberbatch did in Mowgli. And I didn't think that that would be the case, but it's the case. And Bill Murray as Baloo. It's a role that you'd never think Bill Murray would take, but he absolutely nails it. The CGI is brilliant. I mean... Wow. How the physical performance of Neil Sethi as Mowgli interacts with the animals is fantastic. Like, there's a scene that made, when we first watched it, it made us and our dad say, wow. And it's when Mowgli is being sent away from the wolves to go back to the human village. And... He, Mowgli touches the fur on the wolf and the fur moves and it yeah it's fantastic so I really enjoy this take on Jungle Book and the versions of the classic songs are fascinating they don't do trust in me but they have it as a recurring leitmotif so it is a musical or yeah yes with two musical numbers okay yeah so, yeah, it's a musical. Hey, it's got one up on that Mulan movie. <laughs> that is true. That Which is doesn't true. It is n- apparently not even keeping the Eddie Murphy character. Like, it's no. gone entirely. Which is... Yeah, exactly. Tut, tut, Disney. Come on. And I also watched Godzilla King of Monsters. Because I wanted to go back through my list. And I, I guess solidify certain things that I saw at the beginning of the year. I really enjoyed it. I know that you didn't quite like it as much, Lawson. I liked it. I just didn't love it. Yeah. I like the first one better. Yeah. I think, for me, if this movie didn't have the score by Bear McCreary that it does, it would not work as well. 
the music gives the monsters such character. And you'll see that when I'm talking about this movie, I'm not talking about the humans as much. <laughs> That's because this is a Godzilla movie. <laughs> and it's a big monster movie. The human beings, as fantastically acted as they are, are secondary. They weren't Skull Island, Kong Skull Island. They were in the first Godzilla. I'm interested in the monsters and the personality given to them. Which, while they give the monsters personality in this, I'm the kind of watcher and audience member who tries to really get into the small details of facial expressions because I've got high-functioning autism. And I need to look out for that kind of thing in order to mm. understand what people are saying. Or, like, the emotions put behind them. So, there are little moments where the creatures in this movie, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, and Rodan, really have very human interactions. Like, Rodan's big scene where he comes out of the volcano there's a part where he's flying over this town and simply the action of just doing that is causing massive destruction on on the ground and he looks down at the damage he's causing and you know for a fact that he's doing this on purpose you know that he knows that this is what's going to happen from what he's doing. And he's perfectly happy about it. He's purposefully cruel. He's purposefully being cruel. Godzilla is purposefully being benevolent. Yes, people get hurt when he's doing his deal. But he does have interactions with humanity. He does want to protect them. Mothra. There's... Interactions she has with characters that show that she is a protector. She... She'll fight back. She'll fight back when you piss her off. Which happens at the beginning of the movie, but at the end of the day, she is a protector. She's called the Queen of the Monsters for a reason. She's also referred to as a goddess. And she's referred to as a goddess by some of the characters, which does track because... As much as it's weird to say this about a giant moth, holy shit, she's gorgeous. <laughs> the music for her, because the music for her, the way that they frame her, the lighting on her wings, the actions that she takes to help and support she's Godzilla. She's probably the most heroic character in the movie. Yeah. She's the most heroic character in the movie. And she's movie. a giant moth. And she's a giant moth. And the main villain of the film is King Ghidorah. You've got your human villain, played by Charles Dance, who is no slouch. But you're here for the three-headed alien dragon that is King Ghidorah. This is off topic, but every time I... Ever since I rewatched Labyrinth a few months ago... Every time I see Charlie or see or hear Charles Dance mentioned, I just think Dance Charlie Dance. Yeah, <laughs> it just plays it over and over in my like, head. Like if I was a talk show host, I would play that 
when he'd walked on, just to annoy yeah. him. Uh, and I think it would annoy him. <laughs> I know, he it, seems like he's got a good sense of humour. He does. He was in that... the... Oh, I didn't mention this when we were... When I was talking about it, but he is in the most recent John English movie. <laughs> he's hilarious. For, like, a scene. He's in that... Uh, the Ali G movie from years ago. Yeah. Mm. And there's like a great scene of him in that movie on YouTube of him in like some leather outfit uh, dancing at a stripper pole. Yeah. <laughs> and it's great if you just want to like see something that your brain just can't interpret or make sense of. Yeah. So back to King Ghidorah. They did separate motion capture for each of the heads. Which gives the different heads so much personality. The middle one is so evil and cruel and incredibly, unbelievably petty. Like, it will go out of its way to just kill somebody, even though there are so many, much, so many easier ways to do it. It but it will just do it because it's evil. The middle head will go out of its way to eat one single person. One single person. Even though it does no benefit yeah. to it. The right head is just as much of an asshole. But smarter. But, but smarter. It's, it's the thinking one. Left head, he's a doofus. He's an idiot. <laughs> he's, a, he's a goober. He, he's the one who gets taken out the first. First. I don't think that's a spoiler. It grows back. Yeah, he's a doofus. Um, Rodan? He's the star scream. He's a bit of a coward. He's an opportunist. He's an opportunist. Oh yeah, and every shot with King Ghidorah is art. They've, there are some frames in this movie that you could put on a wall in a gallery and they would not be out of place. It's a very striking film. Visually. Yeah. Mm. And back to Bear McCreary's music, he took the original themes of a lot of, of these monsters. So he's got the original Rodan theme, he's got the original Ghidorah theme, he's got the original theme from Mothra's song, from her film, and both Godzilla themes. The sort of action-y theme and the terrifying monster Godzilla theme. And... It's tied together with this brilliant original score just for this movie, for Vera Farmiga's character, for uh, Millie Bobby Brown's character, for the dad character whose actor's name I Carl forget. Carl Chandler. Carl Chandler, who is absolutely fantastic. And... Suizawa as well. Suizawa as a character is brilliant. And has a fantastic moment with Godzilla. Some of the bad things about this movie, however, is some of the script. It goes out of its way very painfully in order to get lines for the trailer. But it also overall, imposes Carl Chandler into things he shouldn't be doing. Yeah. <laughs> but I really liked this movie. And depending on how I rank the list, it could be either on it or as a definite honorable mention right so uh i watched what he watched but i also we also finished up the last two episodes of crisis on infinite earths which is the cw crossover of all the shows in the eververse and broader 
live action DC properties. Uh, that's the easiest way I could put it, yeah. without spoiling too much. They um, they pulled in a lot of extracurricular stuff beyond the Arrowverse. They did. Yes, they did. None of it necessary. No, none of it, none of it was necessary. necessary. But they can did I, it anyway. Can I start off with a question for you, Harley? Yes. Which is, how heavily is Black Lightning involved, and does it appear like he's going to be heavily involved in the Arrowverse going forward? He's not heavily involved in the crossover, but he will be. All right. Yeah. So it seems like he's he's sort of become uh, part of the, the core crossover storyline. He's lines. been rolled in. All right. In a yeah. very monumental sense. Uh, so I probably need to watch Black Lightning if I'm going to watch all the other Arrowverse stuff. If you're going to watch everything post-Crisis, yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Sorry, but that's just how it is now. <laughs> uh, you'll also have to pick up a TV show from 1990, <laughs> which is the original Flash. Okay, but is that going to is is that going to be like part of the post-Crisis thing? No, uh, no, during Crisis. Okay, I, and I, 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 can, I can get away with. Missing that, I think. Yeah, it's only think short, it so it wouldn't matter all that much if you. Yes, but my TV list knowledge. isn't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ju- you can go into Crisis with just the knowledge j- that John Wesley's ship played the original yeah. Flash in the and first also Flash several show. other characters, and you can. Yeah, I'm not going into all of the. I'm not watching the 13 episode Birds of Prey series from 2003. No, no, no. no. I'm don't, not going yeah. in at all that. It's just the main the main stuff that... She disappears. Yeah. Like, the character of Birds of Prey disappears and we don't see them ever again. Uh, there are some other more specific things that you don't... That are referenced that you don't have to watch. No. Yeah. Uh, which is basically just the snippets of other Earths. Yeah. Basically. Uh... But like uh, Lucifer, for instance, he's not big in this. So no. you don't have to watch it because the events of his appearance take place yeah. before. Take pa- place five I'm really, years yeah, before I'm, his series does. I'm really just defining this as uh, stuff that's like now deeply entwined in the Arrowverse lore in an ongoing fashion. So the shows that are now entwined in a deep sense. So uh, obviously the core shows. So yeah. so just stop me here if I'm if I'm wrong. Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow, Batwoman, and Black Lightning. Yes, yes, that's okay. the core. And then lots the Green Arrow and the Canaries when it, if it gets done, and obviously Superman. Yeah, yes, those will be the core right. watch list for that. So did it stick the landing? Did you like the the direction for that it me, went? For me, yes. Part four. Okay, so the first three episodes are very much the Infinity War analog. Yeah. Okay. They leave off in a place where hope is gone. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's in a really bad way. Everything is in a really bad way. Uh, and then in the last two episodes, yeah, it does stick the landing for me at least. Because part four is probably... The second best episode, yeah, of it. Part five is the weakest, but still good. Yeah, uh, because part five gets you acclimatized to the way things are now. Yeah, and it it is the episode of Legends of Tomorrow of the crisis. Yeah, 
So it's basically episode zero of the most and it recent feels like an episode of Legends. So I know that we're sort of very quickly getting to a close in Arrow now. So yep. does it seem like it's geared up for an ending for Arrow, the series proper? That is a is an ending that you'd be. Is it going yes. in a direction that yes. you're happy with? Yes, because ultimately, the entirety of Arrow is about legacy. Yeah, that is the crux. That's the cornerstone on which they built their monument. It it started with Oliver Queen coming back to Star City to essentially fix his father's legacy. Yeah. to He came back with a list of people to kill. And he ends his journey in the Arrowverse preserving legacy. Yeah. His whole... The whole thrust of his story is based on that cornerstone. And therefore, the base of the entirety... Of the Arrowverse. The show... The particular shows, at least. Not just the broader DC live-action multiverse. It is... All of his story... Of how he comes back home. Yeah. From the island. It's how he constructs a legacy... Worth preserving. It's such a... Because you see... Not many actors get this opportunity, but you get to see him say farewell twice. <laughs> yeah. And it is so touching. It's fascinating. Both times. Yeah. And they leave off uh, with things in a very fascinating way. Yeah. That I didn't think they were going to do because, as you know, these shows have their own... Their you own know, plot lines. Long-form plot lines and everything. This throws somewhat of a spanner into the works. I <laughs> uh, have to say that, and it makes me question everything. how one show can have a world-ending thing and not bring everyone else in. Well, there's a that's this isn't a spoiler. That's always been weird to me. There is this isn't a spoiler, but there's a fantastic interaction between uh, the Flash and Black Lightning. Yeah, where Black Lightning is like so. How many times does the world almost come to an end? The baby just gives him this look. And he's like, oh, oh, damn. Well, it was like that uh, that thing when uh, Thor Ragnarok was coming out, where it was like Thor during the events of Civil War is yeah. like mm. Thor and Daryl. <laughs> yeah. Roommate. yeah, it's like, it's like and it's how often of, could the world be in jeopardy? And it's this thing of Black Lightning. Freeland. Is sort of like the be all and end all of. He's not used to bigger than. Yeah, he's not used to this situation. This messes with him (laughs) in a pretty significant way, and I think we'll put things into context. It's very similar with Batwoman as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole perspective thing. I am so fascinated to see how everything goes on from this point. Fascinated to see how Batwoman goes. It is such a. Great crossover for all of the characters. The music is fantastic. The music's fantastic. Musical references galore. Uh, and there's one cameo that you would have never expected them to actually do. And no one expected them to do it, but they did it. Uh, they stuck Pretty the sure you've seen who that is. Yeah. 
They yeah. stuck the landing for me. I adored it. They stuck to a lot of the storylines. Yeah. They got the writer of the original Crisis on Infinite Earths book not only to write an episode, but to cameo in that episode. No, the second. No, he did the fourth episode. He wrote the fourth episode. Oh, yeah. So everything that happens in the fourth episode is basically the same writer's version of the story he originally wrote with these particular characters. Yeah. It's so, brilliant. So it was fantastic. I adored it. And the highest praise I could give it is that it is as it should always have been. And legend, and for Dad, when he's listening to this, Legends of Tomorrow, basically just, it goes on the way it has. <laughs> That's really all if you If you just watch Legends, you'll be fine just yeah. skipping it. That's, it's just the way that it always, that's the way that it's been. Yeah, there you it's... go. <laughs> yeah. What have you watched? Uh, well, other than Jojo Rabbit, I went and saw My Spy in the cinema. Uh, it's another 2020 movie. It's a family spy comedy directed by Peter Segal. And it stars Dave Bautista as a CIA agent named JJ. He blows a mission. And so as punishment, he's partnered with a really excitable tech support named Bobby, played by Kristen Schaal to surveil the ex-sister-in-law and the niece of a known terrorist uh, who is looking to build a nuclear bomb. Uh, The niece is a little girl called Sophie. She's played by Chloe Coleman, and she pretty quickly susses out all of the spy stuff and that someone is watching her and her mother, and she catches them, and she blackmails them into teaching her to be a spy. And she tries to sort of set JJ up with her mother, who is uh, played by Parisa Fitzhenley. I don't see how that could possibly get complicated for them. No. Uh, It's really good fun with a surprising edge to it for a family movie. The director made Get Smart, which is very similar in tone to that. Yeah. it's a lot of really well-done comedy born out of Sophie being um, humorously quite ruthless for a small child, uh, more ruthless than JJ. Dave Bautista is very good. Kristen Schaal is excellent. They've got a really good odd couple matchup going on with their chemistry. Chloe Coleman's the real star here, though. She's very, very talented. Um, and it all leads up to this surprisingly high-stakes finale, like it gets full on like you, it, the finale of Get Smart goes like full on it's like it becomes a James Bond movie and this does as well uh, it's a really good movie for the whole family um, it doesn't break the mould but it's funny and it's warm and, and I, I had a really good time with it I was surprised by how much I liked it uh, in addition to two Machete Kills I also watched the first Machete which came out in 2010 it's an action movie directed by Robert Rodriguez and Ethan Manneke. As mentioned earlier on in the podcast, I'm only really watching this because they had a fake trailer for it in Grindhouse that they then decided to make into a full movie. And it's about Machete, played by Danny Trejo. He's a former Mexican federale, and he loses his family. They're all killed by a drug lord, played by Steven Seagal, um, who I think is supposed to be Mexican, even though he he is shockingly white. Um like, but, and, and white not only in the way he looks, but the way he acts. Yes. 
Uh, Steven Seagal, I got some thoughts. But anyways, his family gets killed, Machete's family gets killed, uh, and he sort of, he goes to the US and it picks up a couple of years later. He's in the US, he's crossed illegally, he's in a border town, and he is forced by a dodgy businessman named Booth, played by Jeff Fahey, to assassinate a racist state senator, uh, Senator McLaughlin, who's played by Robert De Niro. Hmm. Uh, it's a setup. Booth is actually McLaughlin's aide. Um, De Niro's going on about how he wants an electrified border fence and how, you know, the Mexicans are coming and they're all terrible people and a lot of stuff that's surprisingly prescient. But his his poll numbers in this fictional world are tanking. Um, And to sort of boost the poll numbers, Booth frames Machete for this assassination, forces him to do the assassination, then makes sure that it goes wrong and turns McLaughlin into a wounded but alive martyr. Yeah. Uh, so Machete sets about taking revenge. This is surprisingly good. I was braced for something worse, uh, especially after watching all those Spy Kids movies. Uh, I wasn't the world's biggest Robert Rodriguez fan by that point. So they did a number on you. Yes. Uh, it ended up being a, a fun, fast-paced action film. It has a lot of personality. The first hour was, first half hour was a bit slow. It wasn't entirely working for me, but then it clicks into high gear and it has this excellent, over-the-top, bonkers finale that I really dug. It's probably the movie Rodriguez should have made for Grindhouse. Um it's way less slick than Planet Terror. It's way more genuine. It's not straining to wink and nudge at the audience. It's just goofy fun. It's There's a great bit in it where Machete's fighting a bunch of guys in the hospital and he cuts open one of the guy's stomachs, grabs one end of the intestine, runs to the end of the hallway, jumps out of the window, uses the intestine as a, as a rope, to swing down into the floor below. That's uh, awesome. u- Using the guy's body as a counterweight. Like that, <laughs> that's the kind of movie that we're talking about here. Physics, uh, forget about it. Yeah. Danny Trejo's a very fun presence. I, I've i grown to really love Danny Trejo over the years. Yeah. Um, he's so good here because he's so stone-faced. Like yeah. He's playing this totally unflappable, unemotional, like he's, he's just like chiseled out of marble and it's just seeing him go through all this insanity around him is some of the the best humor in it uh he's very good in this jessica alba is very good in a supporting role i know people like to pick on jessica alba but she's good here um de niro she's good in a lot of things she is de niro is pretty hit or miss for me post 2000 you can sort of tell when he's just there for the paycheck when he's just working because he feels like he should be working. Um, for every Irishman or Silver Linings playbook, you get a bad grandpa or meet the fuckers. How dare you? He's um, good in that. He's good all in right. all three of those movies. Uh, but he's having a lot of fun here. It's it's a really lively performance. There's some energy here that's missing in some of his other work recently. It's slow to start off, but it's surprisingly fun. It's a cheesy movie that I was... I was actually blindsided by how much I liked it. The political stuff is uh, pretty fresh and depressingly relevant. And so the how action... integral is the narrative for this first one to Machete Kills? Uh, very little. Like Okay, good. 
you know all all you need to know for Machete Kills is the Jessica Alba character, really. Right. Um and even then you don't really need to know that for Machete Kills if you're just watching that as its own thing. But uh it's the action is appropriately bloody and absurd. It's 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 quite fun. I next watched Hobo with a Shotgun, which <laughs> is a twenty eleven grimy exploitation thriller. It's directed by a guy named Jason Eisner. So this is also connected to Grindhouse. There was a competition uh, held when Grindhouse was coming out because they had all of the fake trailers in Grindhouse directed by different people. And uh, this competition was make your own fake Grindhouse trailer and send it in and Robert Rodriguez will choose the best one and it will be attached to the film in Canada. Over with a shotgun was the the trailer that won. And after after it uh, aired as part of Grindhouse, premiered as part of Grindhouse, they decided to make it into a movie too. It stars Rutger Hauer as an unnamed hobo. He's in a new city called Hope Town. The name is With ironic. Uh, he acquires one, yes. Um, Naturally, you know. Yeah. This town is controlled by Drake, a guy named Drake, uh, Brian Downey. He's a... He's a crime lord. And he's got I was these two... really hoping that you're going to say Drake, played by Drake. He's got these two lunatic sons who are really awful, um, and the hobo just has enough of it. As it has, there's there's a great line. There's a great newspaper headline because it does like the the montage with the news and the newspapers and everything. The newspaper headline sort of sums it up, which is a uh, hobo stops begging, demands change. <laughs> that, okay, that's excellent. That is excellent. That's a, that's a funny joke, just contained within itself. Yeah. But he's got this like he's got this weird sort of schmaltzy motive that he wants to buy a lawnmower and start his own lawn mowing business, Aww. sort of get out of the gutter. But there's Small this business owner. There's this sort of sort of hilarious, well, not tongue in cheek, very amusing scene where. It's an amusing beat in the scene. It's not an amusing scene, I should say. It's actually kind of a horrifying scene where he's in a pawn shop. He's he's there. He's finally got the money for this lawnmower and he's there and he's going to go and buy it. And it's forty nine ninety nine, and um, people burst in and they start to rob the store while he's there. And he he wants this lawnmower and he keeps looking at the lawnmower. He looks at like forty nine ninety nine, and then he looks over at the wall and there's a shotgun for sale on the wall. But it's forty nine ninety nine as well. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and he ends up buying the shotgun to save everyone in the store. Reluctant hero, the city cries out, Ho-bo, ho-bo, ho-bo. I don't really and... know how to feel about this movie. Yeah. It's very successful at what it's trying to do. It's really successful at what it's trying to do. And I actually admire it a lot for that. I... What it's trying to do isn't very nice. It isn't. I. It might just be a little too much for me. I appreciate it the more that I think about it. I think it is a very impressive piece of filmmaking, especially considering the budget that it was on. It's a first-time director. It's doing all of this. It, it's it is it is it's a grindhouse movie. This guy, yeah. this guy Jason Eisner, with his first movie, he's made a grindhouse movie. He's made a more accurate grindhouse movie than Robert Rodriguez or Quentin Tarantino ever made. Um, Fair enough. But the experience of watching it was deeply unpleasant. Uh, it's horrifically violent in a, in a scummy sort of way, in a dirty sort of way. It's it's over the top, but it's disturbing in an over yeah. the top way. It's not like Kill Bill, where the over the top nature of the violence 
were opposite of its impact. Um, it's it's really kind of awful violence. It's over the top in a sense that it just makes it more disturbing. Yeah, it's compelling to watch, but it's it's slimy and it's mean spirited. There's a scene where um, some criminals murder a bus full of school children while Disco Inferno plays in the background. Um, there's that scene I mentioned in the um, the pawn shop. The guys that are robbing the pawn shop have a shotgun and there's a, a woman with a stroller and a baby in the pawn shop and they point the shotgun right in the baby's face and they're about to kill the baby when the hobo intervenes. Um, there's a disturbing amount of like sexual violence there's a scene that is actually kind of awesome in a in like a really awful way but really disturbing nonetheless where um one of the characters is having her uh arm forced into an industrial fan an open industrial fan, and like the hand, the the fingers go, and the hand goes, and bit by bit, until she finally manages to break free, and then she stabs the guy who was attacking her with her exposed arm bone, just like shivs him over and over again with this exposed Jesus. arm bone. It's, I mean, like I look at that, and I'm like, just like, well, I've never seen that before. Well, I mean, and, that's Grindhouse. Yeah, that's Grindhouse. Like you, you're doing what you you set out to do, but like. I didn't like seeing that. Um, <laughs> like, you, you successfully did what you tried to do. Yeah. But please it, don't. It crosses the line repeatedly, and that's the point. Um, it's got an excellent synth score. Like, if you, if you, even if you don't watch the movie, like, Jean, I know you're, you're big into, like, synth stuff. Yeah. Listen to the score. It's pretty fantastic. Uh, everything's neon. There's all these pinks and blues and crazy colours. There's no natural lighting and it looks brilliant. Like it's got this great sort of 80s Blade Runner vibe. Looks I mean, quite look wonderful. Yeah. And you've got these, these crazy grindhouse asides too. Like like there's this whole just out of nowhere in the third act, these this secret society of assassins called the Plague enter the movie. Like they're hired to take out the hobo and they're all dressed up in these armoured suits and things and you never really understand what their deal is. They never explained, but we see their lair and there's some giant monster in a pit with tentacles coming out of the pit and that's never addressed. And that's there's all of these... There's all, like, the the hobo's face is on a wanted poster, and when, like, they capture him at one point and they cross the, the face off on the wanted poster, but all of the other wanted posters, like, there's a poster there for Abraham Lincoln and a poster for Jesus. Like, <laughs> like just, and it's never addressed. It's just there. What did Abraham Lincoln do? I don't know. I mean, he is dead as well, but... Beside that, well, what did what did Jesus do? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> Instead of what would Jesus do, what, what did, did Jesus, Jesus do? Uh, aesthetically, there's this there's this great homage to it's a great homage to low budget genre picks of, of the seventies and eighties, and it ends with this great glitzy bubblegum pop song uh, called "Run with Us" by a band called Glitterwolf that pays, and it's the most eighties thing. Like you just close your eyes and picture the music video, and it's all like bad hair, and it's in a shopping mall for some reason. Um, <laughs> like it's like pink li- pastel suits. Listen to that song because it, it's angles. listen to that song too because it's such a good song. But it's also like how is this? 
how does this fit with the rest of this movie? Um, <laughs> the second half is better than the first because it's that's when the hobo's fighting back and you finally get at least some catharsis with all of the yeah. like awful, miserable stuff that you're seeing. Rucker Hauer is phenomenal. Um, like he holds this movie on his back. It's like Atlas holding up the world. He single-handedly is just like makes this movie worthwhile and he's there's there's genuine i'll give them credit i'll give the filmmakers credit they try for something genuinely emotional and moving with rucker Hauer and the hobo they try to make they try to give his character an emotional impact and rucker Hauer sells the hell out of it there's a there's a scene in the film um which is actually in one of the trailers and you should probably uh seek it out even if you don't see it because it's just a great performance where everything's going bad you know every everyone's dying or been seriously injured <laughs> and Rakaha has taken one of his buddies to the the hospital and he sort of wanders away while she's being tended to and comes across the the newborn babies all lined up as they are in hospital movies and this is what he says to them in his sort of Rakahawa, like full-on tears-in-the-rain speech mode that he's going nice. on here. A long time ago, I was one of you. You're all brand new and perfect. No mistakes, no regrets. People look at you and think of how wonderful your future will be. They want you to be something special, like a doctor or a lawyer. I hate to tell you this, but if you grow up here, you're more likely to wind up selling your bodies on the streets or shooting dope from dirty needles in a bus stop. And if you're successful, you'll make money selling junk to crackheads. And you won't think about, and you won't think twice about killing someone's wife because you won't even know what was wrong in the first place. Or maybe you'll end up like me, a hobo with a shotgun. <laughs> Yes! <laughs> That's my boy! But, like, I think I sent you guys a link. I don't know if you watched it or not, but that that's that scene, and it's so brilliant. I'm just like, yes, Rakahawa, why are you not... Why are you doing... I mean, I know why you're doing Hobo with a shotgun, but, like, why are you not in a position to turn down Hobo with a shotgun? Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, so, yes, it's a very effective movie that does exactly what it intends to. Your mileage may vary wildly as to whether that's a good thing or not. Uh, it has merit, but I don't think I ever want to see it again. Um, Fair enough. But, yeah, I, I, I do find it fascinating. And, uh, yeah, it's just a weird movie that I've been thinking about a lot ever since I saw it, like, processing it. Wor- it. it worms its way in there. Yeah, it sticks with you. Uh, and lastly, I watched *Inglorious Bastards, the 2009 Quentin Tarantino-directed war drama. Uh, it's about this group of uh, Jewish-American soldiers who are behind enemy lines in Nazi-occupied France in World War II. They're called the Inglorious Bastards. There's a premiere of propaganda film being held in Paris. Hitler's going to be in, in attendance, and so the Inglorious Bastards decide to crash that party and hopefully end the war by killing Hitler and all of his top lieutenants. Uh, I liked this movie a lot. Yeah. I actually like it more the, the more I think about it and the further I get from it, the more time I have to roll it over in my head. Uh, its greatest asset is its dialogue. It's some of Tarantino's best dialogue scenes, like the opening scene with Christoph Waltz in the farmhouse, uh, the bar scene, that's like a full-on half-hour people's... People talking at a table, just uninterrupted scene that's a half hour long. 
And it's so tense. Hmm. Uh, I mean, in isolation, there are scenes here that are among the best in any Tarantino movie. It doesn't cohere for me totally as well as some of the other ones, but I still love it. It's maybe a little too long. The first half could get cut a little bit. I liked that it was foreign language so much. Only about 25% of the movie almost is in English. Everything else is in French or German or Italian. There's a little bit of Italian there as well. And I like that. I like that Tarantino kind of snuck a subtitled movie into the unwashed masses of American cinema. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I know that was one of the criticisms that people levied at. It was like, oh, why isn't it English? It's like, oh, because it's set in Germany. Yeah. But the performances are excellent. I mean, it's a great cast. You've got Pitt, you've got Fassbender, uh, Michael Fassbender, Brad Pitt, you've got uh, Diane Kruger. The MVPs, though, they're Melanie Laurent and Christoph Waltz. Melanie Laurent is is very good. She's like the, the emotional heart of the movie. And Christoph Waltz is just extraordinary. Like, this was his breakthrough. Uh, he got the Oscar for it. He deserved it. I know that a lot of people sort of criticise his two Oscar wins for Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained because they say that Django Unchained was just the same performance. It's not I don't the know same performance. performance. I don't know what the hell those people are talking about. This this is totally different. Uh, his character... These characters are nothing like each other. Yeah. They're this... so diametrically opposed as well. Exactly. This character is um, Hans Lander. He's an SS colonel. He's very slippy, slippery to figure out. He's an interesting character to sort of wrap your head around and get a hold of. Uh, and it's it's really impressive because he is he is the only actor in the movie who is going through all of the languages. He speaks yeah. English, French, German, and Italian in the movie, oftentimes slipping from one to the other in the same scene. And that's super impressive. He's so good, so, so good in it. I love the scene between him and Melanie Laurent, who is a uh, Jewish woman who he killed her family uh, years earlier, and she's on, she's hiding, she's passing as a as a uh, non-Jewish French citizen, and they sort of encounter each other at a cafe, and he's sort of like, oh, does he know or does he not know? Does he recognize her from that time he caught a glimpse of her from way far off years ago when he killed her? killed her family and it's does so he so does tense. He care? but i'm like of course he knows because that's the thing is like when that opening scene where he kills her family like he he makes a point of like drinking milk because it's a dairy farm like he drinks milk before he kills them and so he orders milk in the scene where he's talking with her in the cafe and then he like insists that he buy her strudel and they eat strudel. And I only found this out later, but apparently the way that strudel would have been made in Europe at the time is with animal products, including pork, which makes it not kosher for Jews to eat. Mm. Jews can't eat it. So, like, and that's never expressed in the film. It's just an added layer there. It's like he's messing with her. He clearly knows he's making her eat pork. Yeah, yeah, he knows. Does he really he does care? Not care. Got away. Yeah, and that's the thing. He doesn't care. Like he just, he just, he's such a slippery character to wrap wrap his head around. It's one of the best characters Tarantino ever wrote. And like, because is he a full blood Nazi? He's a soci- yes and no. He's a sociopath who sides with whoever is in power uh, yeah. at the time and can get the most for him. 
Because at so. the end, he says he'd move to America to help the American government. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the, it's this sort of... He never takes any action unless he sees a reason for to do so himself. Yeah. Even like he finds out information, he sort of just collects information and waits until it becomes useful for him. It's a very interesting character. Like, and uh, part of him knows that they're going to try to kill Hitler, but he again, he just doesn't care. Anyways, um, yeah, great movie. Great, great movie. I liked Mike Myers in it. Yeah, I didn't even really realise it was Mike Myers until like halfway through the scene. Like, I knew he was in it. But I was yeah. like, mm. oh, who's that? He seems familiar. And I was like, oh, it's Mike Myers. Um, anyways, why don't we move on to Machete Kills, which is our deep dive this week. Yes. Uh, so... Let's start with Harley. What did you think? Yeah. 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 Uh, it is... I'll say this much. When it's clean, it is clean. Like, when it is attempting something big and actually makes it work, it really makes it work. Mm. But that really contrasts with when they try something big and it doesn't. I'm talking mainly about visual effects at this point. When they try something and make it work, it really works. And when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. Like some of the backgrounds and shit like that. I'll point out some of those bits in the deep dive. Yeah. But that's what made it such a weird experience for me. Yeah, it's a bit all over the place. It's very all over the place. Uh, some of the performances are hilarious. Uh, there's one particular character I really like in it. Uh, the chameleon. Yes. We'll get into the reasons why I love the, the chameleon. Uh, deep dive. I had seen this before. Yes. But I really forgot the order in which shit happens. I've seen this movie three times. And oh, you must really love it, Sean. <laughs> I've seen a lot of movies three times, Lawson. Uh, I enjoy this movie. Hmm. I think it has a fascinating cast list. I... It's Danny like, Trejo, again, it's, is really good. It's an inexplicably stacked cast. Yeah. Mm. And I do like how it is unabashedly just Robert Rodriguez. Like, he doesn't really try to temper himself, and you can tell that he... Look, because we're going into spoilers, I'll say it. He, you can tell that he really likes Star Wars. Yeah. You can tell that that was, is a big inspiration for him especially with Mel Gibson's character who I think other than the chameleon is probably the best written character in the film also you can tell that he also really really likes G.I. Joe yes because the main villain by the end looks like Destro he does look like Destro he he looks like Destro with the plane of way, Cobra Com- by way of Cobra, Cobra Commander. Commander, with a tad of like <laughs> Darth Vader, which is hilarious. Yeah, uh, I mean that they basically tell you the Star Wars thing from the get go, from the get go, because the, they, they the tell you where it's going with at a the trailer for its sequel. Yeah, that mm. that sequel is not happening. Ends but up it being should. 
ends up being less of a joke than you think it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they figure out a very interesting and somewhat realistic way to make it happen, while also keeping with the tone of Machete Kills. And also, we need to say this from the outset, rules of reality do not apply. Nah. Don't, they don't function here. Yeah. This is a world that's absurd, uh, is as absurd as it needs to be. It's At almost absurd point. in a Spy Kids way. Like, there was a moment when I, when watching it the first time, I fully expected the thumb people to just come in and start snapping necks. Because you can, exp- you can, yeah. You can well, see, one of see that I could one see that. One of Sofia Vergara's, um, one of Sofia Vergara's uh, prostitutes is, is the girl Alexa from Spy Panavega. Kids. Yeah. Um, I actually kind of love this movie. I think it's batshit crazy in all the right ways. Um, it's so over the top and it's so ridiculous, but in such a fun way. It's got this like Saints Row mentality to it. Yes. It's uh, like, except less dick jokes. It's like, are we going to try something? Almost. Sure, why not? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's one of those reasons why you were like, man, he's got to be playing video games. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those movies that follows the rule of improv. Yes, and. Yes, and. So any idea he comes up with, he's like, yes, yeah, and let's do the thing. But also, yeah. Uh, it's still surprisingly political. Like there's a yeah. border wall and all sorts of things. Um, really well acted. I think uh, Damien Bashir as the the drug, uh, the revolutionary in, yeah. in Mexico, he's really good. Mel Gibson's really good in this. Danny Trejo is very good. Yeah, Charlie, Amber Heard Charlie is good Sheen in this. is playing Charlie mm. Sheen. Yeah. Amber Heard is good in this. She is. Like, really good in this. Like, better than I remembered. Yeah, I quite liked it. And, and you can see why she was cast as Mero. Mm. Like, you can see it. Still, Mero's her best performance. Yeah, I hope they get to make the sequel. I Sophie really do. Need to see Sophia it. Vergara is wild in this. She is. But it's like. Danny Trejo's in his 70s now. I hope they get that done. I hope they yeah. can make that happen. Yeah. I feel like they've got only five more years until it just becomes not a viable Untenable. thing. Mel Gibson would do it. <laughs> well, what else has he got going on? Exactly. Like, what? Another Daddy's Home? No thanks. Daddy's Home Th- 2 was actually Lithgow pretty good. Lithgow in it. You wash your no, mouth out. Lithgow was great. Yeah. I didn't like the first one, but I, I quite liked the second. Because of Lithgow? I thought they were both actually pretty good. I liked the dynamic of Lithgow as this sort of so- soft teddy bear sort of thing. Yeah. And Mel Gibson as this hard-assed, uh, you know, man's man kind of guy. I liked like, the, the dynamic that brought out. Like, I don't like either Mel Gibson or Mark Wahlberg. So having them as father and son actually... Excellent casting. <laughs> it got me into the zone because... I find Will Ferrell and John Lithgow so lovable, which is the point. They're so they're, so, they're very soft boys. So well, so that costume was incredible. Like, but, uh, but you cannot deny. Yeah, you might not like them personally, but you gotta respect Wahlberg and Gibson as fantastic actors. They are really good actors. I'll say. Uh, that. Gibson, yes. Wahlberg, no. <laughs> Wahlberg has, has his been moments. in really good. He was in The Departed, and he was fantastic in that. He has his moments. Uh, so let's get started. 
so we start off with Machete Cortez, played by Danny Trejo. They actually say his surname now, confirming him to be the same Machete in the Spy yep. Kids movies. Hell uh, yes. And, Which is uh, weird, because Jessica Alba's so not, also in this, and yes. so is... So we're not starting with the trailer for... No. Well, we already sort of talked about yeah. it. Yeah. Machete kills again in, in space. space. Uh, so Machete is out and about with his girlfriend slash partner, Sartana Riviera, Rivera, sorry, played, as you say, by Jessica Alba. They're trying to catch these weapons dealers who are smuggling things across the US-Mexico border. And they crash this weapons deal and try and stop it all from happening. But things go badly. A, a group of masked attackers attack and... And like luchador-esque masks. Yes. And Sartana is shot and killed. With a laser gun. Yes. Jessica Alba is not even credited in the film. It's, they're just... It's, it's just kind of a, a grind... A B-movie thing, isn't it? To just sort of kill off the character from the previous movie. Or one yeah. of the characters from the previous movie. And so quick mm. and ignominious away. Yeah. But this opening scene also has some fighting by Machete in it. It shows him as indestructible as he's always been. Uh, he grabs onto this. Uh, he swings his machete at this electric control box, like this junction box. Grabs another guy, electrocutes them, and through himself. It yeah, and shrugs off the electricity himself. Because why not? Um, so after all of this. The American police arrive, and they rest. They arrest Machete because he's yeah. right, the only guy still living <laughs> at the area, and he is taken into captivity by the dodgy racist sheriff Dokes, played by William Sadler, and they decide to hang him because that's what, what they do. What they do, apparently, but you get this great beat where they they kick the chair out from under him and he's hanging there and he's just staring glaring at them as he hangs unblinking <laughs> totally unfazed it does not take i don't know i just said like danny trejo's just got so much muscle such thick neck muscle that it like he's too uh, powerful to die that way yeah, yeah. machete's um, like die like this no but uh he gets a, a phone call the sheriff does from the president, President Rathcock, played by Charlie Sheen, who was essentially playing himself, as you said. Credited as Carlos Estevez. Yes. For the his... first time in his career. Mm-hmm. And he calls Machete in and gives him the pitch, which is that a guy named Marco, Marcos Mendez, who's a revolutionary in Mexico, he's played by Damien Bashir, he is threatening to bomb Washington to with missiles unless America uh, intervenes in the drug trade in Mexico and uh, helps clean up all the cartels. And Rathcock decides to send Machete into Mexico to find Mendez and stop him because he says, uh, you know Mexico, hell you are Mexico, I think is the line that he says yeah. to Danny Trejo. He also has this fantastic line in the scene who says, I'm not requesting you to do this. I'm telling, I'm telling you, you yeah. to do this. But like you you'll see the um the the campaign ad of his later on that sort of just cuts in inexplicably in the middle of, of uh the story later on, where he's just like 
his re-election ad, Hi, America, it's been a chill four years. <laughs> and I but, will continue winning. Yeah. But, um, I mean, th- these Machete movies have done a pretty good job of sort of playing on the actors' reputations. Like, I didn't yeah. mention it, but in the first one, Lindsay Lohan is playing uh, a drug-addicted um, young woman who, like, keeps getting into trouble. But... Yeah, it has a sort of self-awareness about its cast in these movies that is yeah. interesting. It sort of crosses over with, like, the movies written by Terence Zidonich, like uh, Repo, The Genetic Opera, and Devil's Carnival. Like, they trade off of these people's actual personalities yeah. so much. Yeah. The president links Machete up with Blanca Vasquez, who's played by Amber Heard. She's going to be Machete's handler. She is in more ways than one. She Wink. is... Uh, I was literally about to say that, Lawson. Damn it. She is undercover as a Miss San Antonio. Is that yes. it? Yes. At a beauty pageant contest, because, of course... she drops out of the southern accent just whenever she wants to. Yes. Uh, and... She basically preps Machete, and then they do the, the the sex scene. They don't lean into it as heavily, and Machete kills. But in the first one, that's like the joke, um, where every woman in the movie just inexplicably wants to get with Machete, and they play the same like dodgy seventies music at the same time, like the same riff and, and they, every and time they do it happens. This thing where it's like. Put on your 3D glasses. Yeah, they do that in this one. Um, that's quite fun. But this is really the only time that they do that in uh, yeah. In, yeah. in this one. In the previous one, like it was Jessica Alba, it was uh, Michelle Rodriguez, it was Lindsay Lohan in a threesome with the Lindsay Lohan character's mother. <laughs> like, it's, it's full on. They lean into it a lot heavily, more heavily in the first one. But in any case, Machete is is now he goes into to Mexico and he tracks down Madame Desdemona, who's probably going to know where this guy is. She's a brothel madam played by Sofia Vergara, and her she daughter. Plays it to the hilt. She does. She's crazy. You can kind of tell. Like I've been on Modern Family for years. I need to do something else. <laughs> Please, God, let me do something else. I need else. to do something with some edge, for the love of all things sacred. Please. Let me swear. I will do whatever you want me to do, Robert. Uh, she gets this insane monologue later on in the film where she, like, mm. talks about being abused as a girl and biting off a guy's genitals with her teeth. Yeah, it's and, the like, man-eater monologue. Yes. And this, man, you're right, the man-eater monologue. And then she, like, talks about having, like, the gristle and stuff stuck between her teeth. It's awful. It's yeah. bizarre. But she and does it so well. She got full on crazy eyes going. Like she's yeah. she's playing it as like a total lunatic. Um, but she's got a daughter called Cereza, who's played by Vanessa Hudgens, and she is a favourite of Mendez. Uh, we get the impression, sort of, that he's not. She's not really a prostitute, no. or at least Mendez isn't using her in that sense. He's it's sort of companionship. It's companionship. He's talking to her, and. Machete goes to Cereza and she agrees to take him to Mendez, much to the yeah. chagrin of Madame Desdemona, who violently tries to prevent this, but is unsuccessful. And apparently Cereza is her daughter? Her daughter, yes. Uh, and we get... They're on, the, they're on the docks now. They've contacted 
uh, Mendez and his people are coming to pick them up and we get this henchman called Zaror, played by Marco Zaror. It's just his surname. They He's just called the guy his surname. Um, and when they get there, they get in this helicopter and they go off. Uh, but because Cerezo's revealed their location to Machete, oh, she, we, we sort of get this, this bit from her beforehand that Mendez is sort of losing his mind. And it's becoming yeah. very unstable. Yeah. She believes in Mendez the revolutionary, but she is terrified of Mendez the madman. Yes. But we see proof of this madness because once they get in the air, Zaro uh, reveals that Mendez has turned on Ceriza because she's brought Machete to him. And so he shoots her and kills her, drops her out of the airplane, and then shoots her body as it falls into yeah. the sea. <laughs> and they fly off Which to... you can tell was explicitly what Mendez said. Yes. And they go to Mendez's hideout, which is in an ancient Mayan temple, or an Incan temple or something. They've got some absurd giant pyramidal structure in the jungle that's all decked out. Yeah, And they go inside and we meet Mendez, who, as I said, is played by Damien Bashir. And we find out that he's got multiple personality syndrome. That We'll learn some of this as the movie continues, but we find out that he used to be the only spy for the American government. That things sort of went badly. And he became a revolutionary. And then he started to develop this multiple personality thing where he will have his regular personality and he'll have this batshit crazy guy who just wants to I mean the crazy guy is the personality that's got this missile plan with Washington yeah and we find out that the missile is set on a on a dead man's switch which is that if his heart stops beating then the missile will fire and there's no way to deprogram that they need to go back into America to get someone to deprogram it find the manufacturer mm -hmm. yeah so uh, Machete kidnaps him. There's a big shootout with all of his uh, henchmen. Uh, oh, there's a fantastic line where Mark Mendez says, people sing songs about Machete. Hey, everyone, put your hands up if here if you've sung a song about Machete. Three people put their hands up and he has them shot. Yeah, only, only I get songs sung about me here. Yeah. So I think mm. what he says. That in the escape, Zoror, the henchman, is killed. In such a cool way. He is thrown into the blades of a helicopter. By his intestines, so yes. that's a running theme. Oh yeah, Machete uses what he has. His new special Swiss Army Machete. Yes. And the next 20 minutes or so are sort of taken up by these various skirmishes that Machete and Mendez get in as they're working yeah. their way to the, the mm. Mexican border. But it's about here that we're introduced to the chameleon who is yeah. a assassin who is kind of... It's not really made clear how he does this, but he shapeshifts. We first see him as Walter Goggins, and... Yeah. Walton Goggins, sorry. And he, after carrying out a hit, peels back Walter Goggins' face, and underneath it is Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> yeah. And the chameleon is given the best lines some of the best lines in the movie. Like, he... This guy says, look, I'll give you the money and we can forget about this. And he says, 
It's not about about the money. It's about the ethics. It's about ethics. I've been commissioned and I've signed a contract to kill you. Now, if I don't follow through with my contract, what does that make me? That makes me a liar. You want me to be a liar. (laughs) And, like, also by this point, uh, since Mendez was taken, he's already had something set in motion that if he gets taken... It puts a bounty on his own head. Yeah. Yes. And he's, like, activated some sort of thing in the device, the heart device that makes it 24 hours now. Yeah. It's a 24-hour countdown. It's not an unlimited thing. Yeah. And the chameleon has this fascinating thing where whenever someone sees him and is like, well, gotta change the face. I'm sorry. I didn't want to kill you, but... You saw you my, see face. my face. Because yeah. he kills this uh, couple who are asking for directions. Yeah. Outside. As Cuba Gooding Jr., who nails this role. All of them do. They all do. Yeah. But this like, is such a great character. As things go on, uh, we'll see him pull off Cuba Gooding Jr.'s face and turn into Lady Gaga in her first film appearance. So good, though. But uh, eventually, Machete and Mendez get back to America. There's... After all of these skirmishes with yes. all of these other people. Okay, here's the oh, other thing. Okay, The thing with so, you in the wheelchair. Just, wait. So, one of the things that happens is that in after one of the skirmishes, Marcos gets shot like somewhere near the neck, like in the collarbone area. So they go to this... Uh, sort of makeshift hospital. But Madame Desdemona has tracked them down there. And she's got this... Uh, she calls them her double Ds. It's like a machine gun metal... Yeah. Like a metal brassiere. Kind of like the fembots in Austin, Austin Powers. Powers. Yeah. These chain guns. So it's this insane... And laughing while she shoots at him. <laughs> Like, it's this insane nonsense, and that occurs with many of the skirmishes, including something she refers to as the strap-on. Yeah. Which is this, uh, cod piece that's basically a magnum, like, with armor-piercing rounds. And it's throughout these skirmishes that there's one in a restaurant where you do get more information from... Marcos, and he's sort of the good side of him, the revolutionary, just wants to die because of the awful things that the madman has done. And it it gets to this point where you are at, they're at this place picking up an armored car, and the guy who runs this place is in a wheelchair with a o- oxygen nose thing in. Because he's obviously quite ill. So, Machete's threatening him. And the guy says, You're not going to shoot a guy in a wheelchair, are you? And Machete says, No. So he shoots the, the tanks on the back. That propels him forward. Then all of these guys who are after Machete shoot the living hell out of this guy in a who's and, in a wheelchair. And one of them, one of them has a rocket launcher and blows him up. <laughs> and it's just this weird over the top over the top like surely 
they would stop shooting the moment they knew it was saw the that guy. it was not Machete. Because these two people look nothing alike. Hmm. It's so, wild. Yeah, they get back to America after a bunch of skirmishes, including Lady Gaga as the chameleon. And there's sort uh, of a brief standoff with Sheriff Dokes, who's turned back up. He's sort of yeah. participating in this off-the-books border patrol thing, killing illegal yeah. immigrants. Hmm. And he says, all right, now I get the... Uh, well, well, actually, no, because he gets the the thing of he the bounty. He hears about the bounty. He hears yeah. about the bounty. And he's about to kill Machete and Mendoza when uh, Mel Mendes. Gibson shows up. And Mendez. Why do I keep saying? You know what it is? It's the uh, the villain in the McBain movies in The yeah. Simpsons. Mendoza. <laughs> and I keep confusing him because that's what when uh, when Zardoz or whatever his name is Zaro got thrown into the helicopters. He yells like Mesh- he said Zardoz. Like when it's he, the bloody Sean Connery film. But when he gets thrown into the helicopter blades, he yells like, Machete! As he gets sucked in. And yeah. like I remember thinking like, Mendoza! <laughs> when that happened. So yeah. now it's like permanently crosswise in my brain. Yeah. Those synapses are firing simultaneously every time that name comes up. Anyways, yeah. uh, this guy called Luther Voz shows up. It's Mel Gibson. He's an industrialist, he's a weapons manufacturer, he made the technology that uh, Mendez is using. And he kills Mendez. He gave him the yes. missile as well. He is participating with Mendez in this. And he kills Mendez immediately and knocks uh, Machete out. In a hail of bullets. Mm-hmm. They shoot him up. Uh, no, Siri. Anyway, as you were saying. When Machete wakes up, he's in this uh, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back back to tank in <laughs> in uh, Luther Voz's factory? factory, his his weapons manufacturing compound. And we sort of get the spiel from Voz as to who he is. And we learn that he's... Sort of a crazed Elon Musk, if he was a weapons manufacturer, that he's taken a private, uh, he's taken a private voyage into space, and when he was out there, something happened to him, and he bec- he gained the ability to see the future <laughs> inexplicably, yeah. and he saw the end of the world, and so he's been building this Moonraker style, you know. Yeah, this Hugo Drax space station. Noah's Ark in space kind of thing where he's going to take all of these rich people and jet off into space. And it's sort of an interesting thing about Voz throughout the whole movie because you don't really quite know if he's just insane or whether he can actually see the future. Because he certainly seems to be able to. Yeah. Yeah, I think he can. But then there are times where, like, things fail him. Like, a lot of the stuff with Machete, like... And it's just sort of explained away as, I don't know, maybe Machete's just too awesome, maybe he's unpredictable. It confuses yes, the Voz, cognition. Voz makes a crack about maybe there's just not got a lot going on in Machete's head, but... But that doesn't make any sense, because he's seeing the future, he's not reading people's minds. Yeah, but, um, well, if no, if Machete has isn't making a decision until he makes one on impulse then the future isn't set until then. Yeah. But um, 
I, th- I think there's enough grey area there that you can't really say with absolute certainty whether he is crazy or not. Mm. Yeah. Whether he can actually see the future. But it does lead to some of the greatest lines where he's like, what do you mean? It's, it's already happened. Yeah. Mel Gibson's just hamming it up in yeah, this whole yeah. thing. Like, he's just... He's doing exactly what the movie asks of him. He's and very, very good in this. The the first time he ever played a villain. Except in real life. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, you know... And then he played one in one of the Expendables films. And he yeah. was very good in that. Anyways, Machete escapes from this compound with the assistance of Luz, played by Michelle Rodriguez. She was in the first film. Uh, she ran this underground society called The Network, which helped relocate uh, illegal immigrants and place them in new lives in America. And he, and he also obtains the turn-people-inside-out gun. He does, which is some spectacularly dodgy effects, but in the yeah, best yeah. way. Because earlier, basically what Voz wants is to bring Machete on board to his way of thinking and gain Machete clones, because uh, Zorro is clones. Yeah. He has an army of Zorro clones. Yes, I didn't mention that, did I? That, that when they get back to America, Zorro rocks up, even though that he was last seen being sucked into the propellers of a helicopter by his yeah. intestines. So he's got this army of Zorro clones. But and, uh, yeah. the the network helps Machete out. Machete makes contact with uh, Vasquez and with the president, explains what's going on, and they, they make and They're very dismissive of him. Who's Osiris? Was he from the first movie? Yes. Right. He was... Uh, I wasn't planning on talking about him in the recap because he doesn't really do that much in this movie. No. He was he was an assassin hired to kill Machete in the first movie and he found God between the movies. Wait, yeah. so the person who he kills in that flashback, is that Cheech Marin? Yes. Wonderful. <laughs> he killed the Spy Kids' other uncle. Uh, and Machete's brother. Hmm. It's a weird multiverse, let's just say that. Yeah. Well, I think you're supposed to be like, Danny Trejo's the only one who's playing the same character. Yeah. All the other characters are the same actors, but they're different characters. But Danny Trejo is playing Machete, the same Machete. Yeah. Uh, We get some, some, he makes makes plans to go and meet Vasquez, and Vasquez turns on him, basically. She reveals she's working with Voz. Yeah. Uh, We get a a fight out that, a, a fight, a shootout that leaves... Uh, Machete stranded in the desert and gets picked up by the chameleon. Yes, who is now Antonio Banderas doing yet another favor for his buddy Robert. Yeah, um, <laughs> and he's great. Yeah, in we this. get because he starts a- speaking sp- Spanish because and- chameleon was learning that as yes. Lady Gaga, and he, he stole a car wrong. where a Spanish language learning tape was stuck in the cassette player. And he can't, and he can't turn get it, it off. Uh, but they get into this cat and mouse thing where he's pursuing Machete through a bunch of underground tunnels along the border, and it's this maze-like thing. And uh, he gets separated from Machete. He comes out. The chameleon comes out in this um, open area where a bunch of like redneck yahoos uh, <laughs> from America are sitting there guarding the border, just in yeah. case any illegal immigrants come and. He tries to explain himself, the chameleon, that he's but now actually just from Ontario. Yes, now he looks like <laughs> Antonio Banderas, <laughs> and so these. When he's race... saying this stuff, like, listen to the way I'm speaking. Yes, because from, from Ontario, he, he puts the um, he puts the the 
Cuba Gooding Jr. and Lady Gaga and Antonio Banderas, they all speak in their own voices when he's playing a character, when the chameleon's playing this character. Yeah. But when he switches back into his chameleon thing, he's just voiced by Walton Goggins. Yeah. <laughs> Dubbed over. But, I um, couldn't tell. That was very clean ADR yeah. work. But then, um, well, you can pretty easily tell when Lady Gaga's talking like Walton Goggins. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, but for Banderas. Yeah. That's the clean ADR. So but, this... These racists are like, uh, Canadian and Mexican. And they kill it. Because <laughs> they're racist loons. Yeah. That, that's probably the best way for the chameleon to go. Yeah. Getting mistaken for someone else. Anyways, Machete uh, gets back to the, the network and they decide to infiltrate a fundraiser uh, as the... Help, I guess. As the help, Yes. Which is another thing that they do in the first movie is like all of the help is like comes in at the end. All of the, the kitchen workers and the um, gardeners and things like take up their lawnmowers and their whippersnippers and their uh, pots Machete and pans and go and fight and help Machete at the end. It's this very sort of heavy handed thing. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of, I suppose, making a comment on the way that. America uses illegal immigrants as labor, but uh, keeps trying on keeping them out of the country, even though the yeah. country sort of needs them. But, uh, but they go and infiltrate this fundraiser that Voz is holding with all of the animals for his not for his ark, all of these people, rich people, and it turns into a fight pretty quickly. Yeah. Machete confronts him, and then we get uh, the reveal that Voz is the one that killed Sartana, that he was the Which guy in the obvious. luchador mask. Oh, yeah, it's very obvious for us. But this is Machete finding it out. And they get into this big fight that ends with uh, Voz being uh, scarred by fuel, Two-Face style. Yeah, yeah, getting half his face burnt. And he puts on this silver mask. And it's in the, the mean- Destro Doctor Doom mm. yeah. sort of deal. And in the meantime, we also get Luz versus Vasquez, where they... They fight it out, and Loz gets shot in the in her remaining eye. She got shot in the other eye in the first movie, and now she's shot in her remaining eye. It's sort of this Marco Polo fight that ends with her defeating Vasquez, despite the fact yeah. that she's blind. Uh, but she's captured by Voz and his minions. Frozen, loaded frozen in carbonite. Frozen in carbonite, loaded it's up again, onto... Again, massive Star Wars fan. Loaded up onto the spaceship, and uh, all of the rich people go on to. It's like an emergency wow. launch now. They go up on this spaceship, and they take off. But meanwhile... And, and, and all of the people who didn't die in the shootout are taken hostage. Yeah. And all the while that... Because they need labor, they yeah. say, in their space and, station. And also, since Voss had M- Mendez killed, he'd removed the heart and kept it beating. Yeah. But eventually... The timer runs out. Just destroys the heart. So it's to get the timer run out. Right before he leaves. Yeah. And the missile launches. And Machete is on top of the missile. He's surfing the missile. Um, Not surfing. He's holding on. He's grasping onto it. He's doing that uh, Doctor Strange love routine. And he just pulls out all the wire. And and thank God that that works because the missile... Yeah, earlier in the movie, it's like, well, from my experience, it's always the blue wire. Turns up, yep, it's the blue wire. It's the blue wire. Just pulls the blue wire and it goes down in the Rio Grande. And the president turns up 
with all the Secret Service? Because, sure, the Secret Service would let the President near an unexploded missile. <laughs> but uh, they have this brief exchange where it's like, oh, it's too late. Voz has taken everyone. They've gone into space. But the President's like, Machete, what have I sent you into space? And Machete's like, I'll do it. And, you know, the President's like, I'm going to put you on the next SpaceX voyage. Yeah. So, the last the strangest cameo in the, in the movie. Film. Elon, Elon Musk. Elon Musk. But also, and like, 20, like, 2013 Elon Musk. Yeah. Not like he wasn't nearly the cultural mainstay then that he no. was now. No. And he was ne- not nearly as weird hmm. as he is now. And, and he's like, go get the bastard. It's like... So that's what, what he sounds like. And Machete is loaded yeah, up. Yeah, he sounds South African, because he's South African. No, he sounded quite British there. No. Yeah, I no, thought he, he was British. South African. Mm. Yeah, he didn't he sound British. South African. He sounded he British to me South too. He is South African, but he sounded British. Yeah. Then he's machetes loaded up on one of Elon Musk's rockets and shot into space, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. So we get this sort of another crack at the trailer from the beginning, and that and in the trailer it's like uh, Lady Gaga is going to be in this one as well. <laughs> I'm like, um, okay, but does that? But the chameleons, whatever. And it also implies that Madame Desdemona is going to find her way up there as well. How is she going to get into space? No idea. I hope that they get to make this movie. It's just too... It's too crazy a concept for it to just sit on a shelf like that. Yeah. I want, it, you, I want it done. And they can't do this to us. It's not like the end of... 22 Jump Street with all of those strange sequel it, ideas. That it's literally half through. a story. It stops in the middle of the story. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is this is the Kill Bill Volume 1. <laughs> Two Machete Kills in Space, Kill Bill Volume 2. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean, there's got to be, in this day and age, there's got to be a streaming platform somewhere that would give him $15 million to Netflix go and make it. Would, t- would take it. Amazon Prime easily would do it. Uh... I've only got Danny Trejo playing Mr. World and American Gods. Is next he? Next season. Is he really? Next season, yeah. Cool. I honestly Mr. have no World idea is how getting played by two that. people because apparently Crispin Glover is another one of the people who sort of dipped out and are like, yeah, nah. Well, well he, Crispin Glover didn't like the fact that they sacked Orlando, Orlando Jones. Jones. Yeah. Because he thought... Uh, yeah, Orlando Mr. Jones. Nancy was so crucial to the show's yeah, identity. Yeah, and see, the whole thing with American Gods is a little off topic, but Orlando Jones got the sack because... We've been through this before. Yeah, because apparently Mr. Nancy was too aggressive. Anyway, massive well, that's quotation what, marks. That is what Jones is saying. The, yeah. the company is saying, of course they would say this, which is that they're adapting part of a book in the third season that does not feature the character. Yeah, but... Some of the stuff they got him to do wasn't in the books either. Yeah. Mr. Nancy. So, Orlando Jones wrote a like, lot of Nancy's stuff. So who knows where the, where that'll go. You know, it but, seems like a burned bridge there that even if yeah, they yeah. need the character back, I wonder what they'll they do. They will not get him. Yeah, so... That was uh, Machete Kills. It was. I um, did it. And that's really all I can say for it. That is just what it is. It's... It's so secure in its own identity. Yeah. Which is something I really appreciate. Because sometimes you get movies that are trying to be something else or self-conscious about being referential or self-conscious about their absurdity. But 
No, this one is very comfortable being in its own skin. I just want to read a quote here from Danny Trejo. He was asked about uh, machete kills in space in a recent interview machete last year. Machete kills again in space. Yes, in a, in a recent interview last year. You know what? Everybody in the world wants that. I keep telling Robert, and you know, it's all bogged down in bullshit, so I might do it. Yeah, I might just produce it and do it if he don't get off his buns. Everybody wants this. I mean, everybody in the world. I've been asked that all over the world. Hey, are you going to do Machete in Space? It was the biggest thing in the world for a while. I mean, you got endless movies doing number six, number seven, number eight. And Machete had a great story to it, you know that, what I mean? I might try to figure out how to do that myself. I could do a movie. I would direct Machete. I've got some great ideas for it. Oh, my God. God bless you, Danny <laughs> Trejo. Do this. You gotta love get, his get, energy. He could get it. some of the actors from The Flash involved because he loved being on that show. Yeah, he was great on that too. You got to use a machete to create interdimensional portals. So no, not playing the characters. No, but he had a lot of fun on that. And he he was also on Brooklyn Nine Nine, and he loved that. He just loves being in stuff. Yeah, and I really hope Robert Rodriguez as put. So eloquently by gets off, his buns. gets off his buns and gets this done. Yes, hopefully we'll be talking about Machete Kills Again in Space on the podcast in the coming years. But uh, until that time, um, we'll have to talk about something else. And so next week's movie is going to be a real swerve in the other direction in terms of tone, which is Philadelphia, the 1993 legal drama starring Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington, which neither of you have seen. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. It's very, very good. Sad, but very, very good. Okay. All right. So, yeah, catch us next week. If... You want to see that? Hear that. Hear that. Uh, So, yeah. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. Yeah.